Welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that is sponsored by the American tapioca industry. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher, and I like to wash things in the washing bucket. I'm Mike Bloom, and I brought this conch shell so we could finally stop talking over one another. And I can't wait to talk about my three favorite Borneo contestants, Colleen, Craig, and um, she wears a pink swimsuit, but I can't remember her name. Wow, 50% on the BB references. I, I like that you forgot to mention your name, Paul. Thank you for introducing yourself to our audience. <laughs> oh, by the way, this is Paul Osselson. <laughs> and well, we and have, welcome we back. The, we have to get the BB in now because it's not going to last long. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, again, welcome back to Historians. Uh, as always, we go through the history of Survivor. Now, obviously, you guys listen to the show. You know what we do. But we're doing something a little special here is that we've gone through the first 20 seasons of Survivor, and we did it chronologically. And as we've done that, a lot of people have asked, hey, you guys should go back and do Borneo again. And I'm like, why? Because there's the, the dirty secret about historians. I, I don't want to speak for you guys. Do you guys ever listen to old historians episodes? Never I have. have. Never will. I, I have, but but it, it was a long time ago, and I haven't done so in years. I have never once re-listened or even listened to a historian's episode, so I have no idea what we talk about. But people listen to these and they remember what we say, and so I get this email all the time. You guys need to go back and do Borneo in the same style that you do all the modern seasons. And I'm like, we didn't? And they're like, no, it was just very rushed. You and Jay and Paul just <laughs> randomly jumped to, to different parts of the season and talked about it. Why don't you go yeah. through it chronologically and give it the full coverage? So that is what we're here for. We're doing Borneo correctly this time. I also want it to be known. I also want it to be known that some people apparently have have emailed. I mean, email is still a concept I still don't understand with this show. But some people have, have apparently emailed a message from Mario and say we need to go back and do Borneo in the in the more traditional format that we have have morphed into now. But some people have messaged and said, "Why aren't you guys doing Nicaragua?" So so <laughs> what we've learned is is that you still ultimately can't please anybody. So sorry. To be fair, I think those emails came from some sort of permutation of FabioBerza at gmail.com. So I think there's one contingency of the face base in particular that wants us to get to Nicaragua. But we'll get there eventually. I think especially, like, again, don't want to date this podcast too much. But, I mean, we are coming up on the actual 20th anniversary of Survivor Borneo airing. So I think this is as good of a time as any to actually go back and investigate the show that, you know, everyone built a fervor around in the summer of 2000. And some of us have stuck around for that number of years thereafter. Right. And and just so for Mario's uh, perspective, because you didn't go back and listen, I actually have listened to, when I say I've listened to old 
uh, podcasts of ours. I literally have listened to our Borneo-ish ones and the Australia-ish ones, and then I stopped. But it was really just to make sure that, you know, just to listen to my my verbal tics and learn that I have many and I'm just <laughs> not going to fix them and that's how it's going to be. But so you know, we did the one episode with, with – uh, Mario, myself, Paul, and with Beatles, and we talked for, we were going to try to talk for an hour and a half, which basically doubled that time, <laughs> uh, and we were going to talk about the first four seasons, Mario, if you remember, just things, you know, mm -hmm. things that we remembered, and so we talked about, you know, where we were and who we were and all that sort of stuff going into Survivor, and we literally just talked about Borneo and Australia for freaking ever, and then we sort of looked at the time and went, oh god, we got to get into Africa, and we like talked about Africa for like 10 minutes or something. And then we're kind of <laughs> like, oh, okay, fine. So then you said, let's do another one. Beatles said no. So it was just you, me and Paul. And we talked about Borneo, but you sort of presented it as like, you brought up like, okay, let's talk about the Stacey Stillman incident. And let's talk about, you know, these sort of things. And you, you brought up topics and we sort of riffed on the topics and things in the episodes came up and we talked about things we liked but we didn't say all right here's episode one this is what we saw and we didn't go through that sort of chronological thing we sort of hit that in australia so that's in case you're uh forgetting that's what we did so the chronological treatment is definitely in order and can I just say, for as many times we talked about this, we never, ever have gotten down the timing right, and we still sit down to podcasts and say we're going to do X number of episodes, and you should get, you know, half to maybe three-fourths of what we say we're going to do. That's just a point I want to make, yeah, considering we still true. have not learned. <laughs> we're like, we're, we're going to do five episodes. Nope, we didn't. So, Beatles, I'm assuming he pulled you guys aside and was like, hey, you know, I think if it just so happens that we're doing another podcast, like, I'm going to leave – I want to go out gracefully. I'm not actually quitting the podcast, but it's okay if I leave right now. He essentially became B Beatles in that moment. Yeah. It, yes. Well, basically, I will, I will defend him. If people don't know the history, we talked about this before. Beatles was a guy, I forget his full name, Beatles 91245, something on Survivor Sucks back in the day. 2047? I don't know. <laughs> he was a dear I, friend to us. We don't remember his name, but he was he was super to close fair, to our when family. When, when your last name is a series of numbers, it's a lot harder to memorize. Yeah, I, I don't remember I his randomly his generated eyes. name. Yeah, so Beatles is was probably the biggest survivor expert I have ever known. And like that's the thing that we try to do as historians. We're trying to portray ourselves as the experts that know the survivor history Beatles is the guy I looked up to that's the guy I learned from back in the day so I really wanted to get him on a show and I got Jay and Paul as people that I knew from back in the day that were survivor you know quote-unquote experts and Beatles didn't really want to do it he was kind of humoring me because he's not really a uh, podcast guy he's kind of private and so we thought it was a one-time thing and then when the first podcast came out I said hey let's do another one he's like yeah thanks but no thanks and it, like it wasn't personal as Jay Fisher said sorry he just moved on and so that's that's what happened but the the goal was just to get everybody i knew that really knew stuff about survivor and document the show's history because a lot of it has been lost over the years and that's even more important to me now because a lot of the history has been lost but what i have found has happened over the past 5 10 maybe even 15 years there's a lot of inaccurate history floating around out there especially about borneo 
And it really, really needs to be corrected. It really bothers me when I hear people talking about stuff like, well, you know, Richard was the only smart one. Everyone else was just stupid. And it was a really easy game because he's the only one. Like, that's not true at all. And so, like, there's little things that I think really have to get straightened out. But that was the whole point of historians and where it goes and where it went. And specifically why I think it's so important we need to talk about Borneo now, because this is really the important one. Yeah. And and just so that people know, we never intended. I mean, that was the whole thing when Mario wanted to have a podcast with Beatles and with all of us. It was not intended to be a thing that we were going to do multiple episodes of, you know. So when Mar when Mar uh, uh, came up with this thing, he was like, I just want to do like one podcast and talk about it and then we'll be done. So it's not like Beatles signed on for this multi-episodic podcast and then we did one and he said hey wait a minute i don't want to do that he literally was doing mario like the biggest of solids of favors to do yeah. the one podcast and then mario was like well maybe i want to do a second one and then maybe another one i don't know and at that point beatles is like i know i'm out and so yeah i don't want anyone to say to to get the impression that like yeah. beatles bailed or something along those lines like it was never our intention to do a multi-episodic podcast. And well, and if I'm being completely honest, I wish I had the balls that Beatles would have had all those years ago. I think I'd be a lot happier, but here I am. Yeah, yeah right. You would have been spared so many Montana jokes, Paul, at your expense. <laughs> but think of the joy those jokes have brought to our listeners, Paul. You'd bring smiles to people. I do it for them, not for you, Mario. Let's make that clear. That's fine. I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean, it's been how many years and we still haven't been paid, so, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, that does bring something up. Is that really? as Jay pointed? <laughs> that that does bring up something that's actually very interesting because I don't really consider this a podcast. Like other people have podcasts, we don't have sponsors, we don't have ads, we're not making any money off this. I consider these more like public service service announcements. Like it's yeah. just a service we kind of provide to people that want to <laughs> learn about Survivor history. Oh, shut up, Mike. I'm sorry. I mean, Ye, who actually does get paid to be a podcast. No, I was going to say, if, no, if, if, if defining a podcast is something you get paid for, then I have just been talking into a microphone pure gibberish for like <laughs> half of my life at this point. I feel like that is not yeah. a denoter. I don't want to compare us to Pee Wee Herman defining crack to a generation of people. This is not a PSA, people. Mike, you're a man whore. We've determined that. But yeah, that's the thing. Like, I don't consider this to be a podcast because we don't do regular episodes. We don't have a schedule. We just do them whenever the hell ever. And so that's that's one thing I do want to kind of clarify that I've never considered this really to be a quote unquote podcast. This is just something we do for fun. And people keep saying, oh, we like listening to those. Please do more. But like we never had a plan to make this a regular thing. Right. And to be honest, I think that's that's fine. And 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 in and, and all seriousness, that's that's not our my goal or any of our goals. I mean, we do this because we love it. And we're here. And those of you who are listening, who seem to enjoy listening, A, thank you. And B, you know, that's why we do it. We do it for our own fun and for, you know, people who are listening in. And it's not for any sort of monetary gain or, you know, all that sort of stuff. So there's no big chest of sponsored products in the middle of this podcast that we're going to know <laughs> is the big prize at the end of all this? I mean, buy Mario's book and, and T-shirts and bleh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, that that does bring up a good point. I'm going to start selling historian shirts if anybody wants one. <laughs> so I'll quickly prove myself. Yeah, a hypocrite. we're not making any money from this. <laughs> On a separate note, please buy our merchandise. <laughs> Especially now during the quarantine, when you have no disposable income, please give it to us. We could use. I like. Do you guys like that Mario said our shirts? 
<laughs> I said I'd split the profits four ways. I said that earlier. That's totally, I can back that up with email. It will be split evenly. And I'll even give Beatles like a dollar at some point. <laughs> and for our listeners in Montana, they come in overalls too. Just letting you know. <laughs> Yeah, I prefer not to have any uh, financial ties with you, Mario. Like I said, not doing this for you at all and don't really want to have that kind of connection to you. So I'll pass. All right. So are we ready for Survivor Borneo? Are we done dicking around? I mean, we're going to dick around a lot over the course of this season. But yes, for the the more miscellaneous dicking around, I would also say that, you know, I think speaking towards our listeners again, I, I don't know how many actually like watch the episodes to follow along with us. I would very much recommend, especially given the current climate, like I think people should really take the time to rewatch Survivor Borneo because it is so different from any other storytelling methods that are used, especially in modern day Survivor. But also, like it, it's just like so enigmatic in its own right that I have no idea if we're going to be able to do this season justice because not only at the time was it such a groundbreaking thing, but I feel like even in comparison to what the show is now, it seems like a completely different animal. Yeah, and that's something I have said for years is that, you know, for years they would always ask people to rank seasons. This is something that all Survivor fans do, Albie. It's not just us. But they say rank your seasons, and I would always say I never include Borneo in my rankings because it's a different show. And the way I used to describe it, I don't know if this is quite accurate, but it's just a little catchphrase I use, is that there was only one season of Survivor. There's Borneo. That's the only season of Survivor that ever existed. And everything after that was an attempt to recapture Borneo or an homage to Borneo. And so, like, I can rank everything after that. That's perfectly easy to do. But this first one is like a documentary. Like, it's almost like the Truman Show to me. We're just watching people's lives. And it's like a, as Quentin Tarantino says about some of his movies, they're hangout movies, like Jackie Brown, where there's not a lot going on. You're just hanging out with the people, seeing their world, seeing their life. And that's really the magic of Borneo, I would say. And it's why a more modern audience can't always handle it because it's really an entirely different product with an entirely different goal, different ethics, different rules, different purpose. Like it's, it's not even the same thing. Would you, would you guys agree with that? I would agree. I would also sort of, uh, to, to give a sports analogy, which I know is, is controversial as heck, but I'm going to do it anyway. You almost have to think of it almost like baseball or some sort of a professional sport in the sense that, you know, when baseball sort of became a thing, even like the Babe Ruth times, you know, it was it was a segregated sport. And the guys that played baseball, it, it was this sport, but it wasn't this big thing yet. And so the, a lot of the baseball players had like regular jobs. They'd work in a factory or they would, you know, have some sort of job. And then they also went to baseball practice sometimes occasionally and then went and played games uh, weeknights in the, in the weekend. And it was just this completely different thing that they did. And nowadays, baseball is this big money-making juggernaut where if you're a baseball player, your whole life is baseball. Your job is baseball. You get paid a bunch of money and you do nothing else but work out, make sure that your body is in correct physical shape for whatever baseball position that you're playing and you practice baseball and that's all you do. So a lot of times when you look at maybe like an old-timey game versus a current game, the current players are bigger, they're faster, they're stronger. They hit the ball further. They, uh, you know, the 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 level of play is 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 bigger and 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 faster and better and all that sort of stuff. And it's kind of hard to compare eras. 
in that sense. And I think that with Survivor, it's the same thing. Not that I'm trying to say that the Survivor today is bigger and better than the old uh, Survivor, but it's different. The game has has gone through uh, a time. And I would even argue with Borneo, they didn't know what they were yet. They had this mm-hmm. game that was rules and, and they had a, they had a general premise for what the game was doing, but they didn't know what the product was, which is why there's all this fun stuff in Borneo that we're going to talk about, like with the conch shell and with certain things where like they were trying things out because they didn't have uh, an idea of what was going on. And unlike some sort of serial game show, because that's what Survivor is, a game show where they film a few episodes, the episodes air, and then they get some sort of feedback from people. They're just out there filming this for 39 straight days before it gets edited and chopped up and presented to the public. So they did that whole first season of Survivor, and they they don't have any feedback as to what they're doing is working. So they're trying to get things going on the fly, which is just a totally different kind of beast to the whole game. So I, what's so great about this first season of Survivor is just the fact that it's so different because they don't know what the product is. And so they're figuring out just as we're figuring it out. And it's this whole discovery. What struck me so much personally was the change in narrative from even between seasons one and two. Season one, I think it's been very much compared to a documentary. And what I was really struck by watching this first episodes uh, of the season is how it is very much edited like a documentary in that almost all of the action is done through talking heads, is done through confessionals where people are saying, yeah, we did this today and then we did this. There's actually very little, you know, in-action footage of, you know, people fishing or people deciding to make an alliance there. It's almost always people describing what happened to the camera, which is very different from even a couple seasons from then when we're going to see a lot more people in wheeling and de- wheeling and dealing in person and the confessionals become more so speaking from the heart about your true intentions here it's more so just to recap what's going on and then maybe provide some color commentary as well as to your own personal feelings about the goings-on i'm glad you said that because there's another phrase that i use all the time and that really backs up exactly what you just said i never thought of it in that way is that survivor is a game show that's really what we're watching is it gets more blatant blatant more over the top and you know manipulated as the show goes along but the first season is not really a game show the first season feels like the raw footage behind what it was like to make a game show Mm. that's the way that i look at it this feels like the raw footage that maybe the producers would have seen as they're putting it together and then by season two that's the slickly packaged one that we're used to by now where it becomes much more of a tv show this one it's not quite a tv show yet yeah, no, that's kind of what I think about too when I watch it is I think about how there's so many TV shows where you go back and you watch the pilot and you're like, whoa, this is very jarring. You can see what they want the show to be before it actually becomes that. So I've always thought of it in the terms of uh, – I'm not doing the sports analogy here, but I, I go more of the, the 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 TV show side of it is is thinking as the first season is the pilot for the series and that when you jump from the pilot to the first – to the first real uh, season or the real, you know, season of what they want it to be. It's very, very jarring because it evolves so much from uh, season one to two. Right. But it's, it's a different beast and, it, and it's incredible in how it goes, because normally when you think of a game show before then, you know, you think of something like Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune or Match Game or something that's in a studio with an audience and the the show changes like match game changed over the years and they but, but you know they had like richard dawson and uh you know uh people that uh rep butler and and 
people that that were there all the time that that were sort of go to personalities. But for the most part, it was the the format was the same, but they would sort of dink around with some of the aesthetics or some of those things. Jeopardy has been sort of the same concept all of these years. Alex, Alex Trebek asks, you know, these sort of questions in the form of answers and you give your answer in the form of a question. The dollar amounts have changed and there's different kinds of daily doubles like daily doubles used to just, just be written. Now there's like audio and video daily doubles and there's all of these things that have sort of changed a little bit, but the premise is the same. Whereas Survivor is this game show, but it's this very interactive, immersive game show where you're not in a television studio, you're on an island and you sort of have to do survival type things. Like obviously you're, they're not in like super, super peril because there's medical and whatnot, but it's like, yeah, they're out there without a ton of stuff and they have to kind of make a shelter and sleep out under the stars in the shelter that they made. And it's this whole different beast. And like I said, they don't have the studio audience or the feedback or any of those sorts of things. They literally just took a crew and went out there and did it and came back and edited it and said, uh, what did we just do? This is what we're doing. And then because it was such a hit and such uh, a part of American culture, they then were like, okay, we've got a thing. Now they're going to put some money in some production. They, 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 they work some kinks out, but yes, I think that that's such a good analogy of this is the raw footage or the, the prototype of what the game show is going to be. The, the premise of the game is not unchanged, but the, the production value and sort of how things work are sort of in in beta. It's almost like the beta test of yeah. what Survivor that show is going to be. Yeah, so they're working out the bugs. They're patching out the gong for the next edition. You know, they're, they, <laughs> I, the production story is super interesting. I mean, I've been, you know, reading the Mark Burnett book, the companion book, uh, Survivor, the, I think, I think it's actually called like the official companion book by Mark Burnett. And it has been super interesting. Essentially, he gives like, a day-by-day -day, uh, recap of both, like, the action that happens on the beach, but also some production stuff, weaves in some backstories from the players as well. Uh, so I'll be interspersing stuff throughout. But yeah, I mean, to hear stories about working on production in Survivor Season 1 really sounds like, you know, working production on, like, uh, an indie startup film, you know, or, like, working in one of those those small ragtag startup bunches where, like, to your point, Jay, they had no idea what they were creating. They had no idea what the winds would bring or what these people would do, but they're just going to stay on that island. They're going to keep those cameras rolling, and as a result, you feel a lot of emotional investment from the projecting perspective as well. But I feel like if you're looking for a season where production is the 17th castaway, Borneo is the biggest example of that, where they're trying to bob and weave and dart around all the things that the players are throwing at them and vice versa. Yeah, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stories. I'm glad you're going to bring those up about the players threatening to revolt and the production has to change things on the fly. It's it's very fascinating. Now, to me, this is by far the most interesting Survivor season. And I've heard, you know, a lot of people, a lot of modern fans don't like Borneo. They can't watch it. It's too slow. It's too jarring. I've heard it referred to as Snornio. That's an excellent uh, nickname I hear all the time. Now, I get why people would think it's boring because it's not really a game show. And this is a really important uh, delineation here that I think it's important to remember. Don't think of Survivor as a game show. Think of it as a TV show where they're packaging the results of a game show for entertainment value to you. They're describing what happened to you in the most entertaining way. So we only see like 1% of the footage, maybe if that. I mean, not even 1%, way less than that. So it's like, 
almost impossible for a viewer at home to know what happens in a game because a we don't see the things that actually happen that are important we only hear about them from other people and b when players say oh this is what happened they only know their personal perspective one sixteenth of the story so like oh this is what joel klug said happened that day that's only what joel thought was happening that's not entirely what everyone else was thinking so it's like it's a very important delineation we're not watching a game show on tv we're watching the packaging of it and that's why i always say it's a tv show not a game show remember that and you won't be disappointed and to me the most interesting thing when watching this is why are things presented this way? Why did the producers do this? Why did they choose to do that? Why is the music here in this? Why is this confessional here? To me, that's fascinating. And you see less and less of that as the series goes along and it becomes more packaged like a sport. Like, oh, this is the sport. Here's the legends as they all square off. Like, Borneo is nothing like that because Borneo is all about ethics, packaging, presentation, editing, psychology. There's so many cool things going on in this season. And that's why I think to call it boring is a disservice to it because it's it's boring in the sense that I think you're expecting the wrong things out of it. Well, I think that's okay though, in, in the sense of that, course, you know, yeah, yeah. We, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, those historians, they bash all the new school Survivor fans, and it's like, well, yeah, because a lot of us are old school Survivor fans. But to me, it's like anything the 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 show, and you could even say the game, but the game is always kind of laughably hilarious because it's a game show. Uh, first and foremost, not nothing's fair. Not it's not pure. Uh, but when everyone ever anyone's ever says, "I love Survivor because it's this great pure game," it's like it's not pure. It's it's a game show. You know, get over it. Producers have their hand in things because they're just trying to make a good television package. Get over it. Deal with it. That's just the way things go. But this, what Survivor, the game and the game show was in Borneo, and even the subsequent seasons from Borneo, is not what Survivor is now. And I'm not going to make a value judgment on what is better and what is worse, but Survivor now is way more, I guess, like you say, Mario, uh, more of a sport-based thing where we do lots of rankings and we've got this, that, and then there are so many twists and advantages. Like the game is almost unrecognizable from what the game was back in the these early times in 2000. But that's okay. The game has evolved. It, it's a just it's a new thing now. But I think that that's the thing that. Uh, people need to remember the basic premise of the game has been unchanged all of these years that they've played, but the game itself has indeed changed. And if you came in late and if you are used to um, uh, all of these advantages, vote nullifiers and uh, immunity idols popping up all these uh, places and all of these new things with Survivor, and then you go back and you see Borneo and you're like, this is boring. There's no twists. There's no immunity idols. They're just literally camping and then voting someone out three days. It's like, yeah, I can understand that this is not what you think the show is because it is different. I think it's a different focus. I think we see this from the very beginning, and we will get into episode one eventually, but I mean, one of the first things that Jeff says as he's walking on this little catamaran and people are throwing things off the side of the boat is that they are going to build a society. And I feel like if we're ba balancing the idea of like, societal value versus strategic value borneo is very firmly in societal value that's not to say that there is no strategy there is a surprising amount of strategy that exists F spoiler alert richard hatch did not single-handedly 
utilize strategy in Survivor. He's not the only person that played strategically. Many, many people did, and we'll certainly get into it. But especially in these first few episodes when they're really trying to figure out who's where and where are they going to live and what are they going to eat, it very much focuses on more of those elements of creating a society. And the reason that these people came on, obviously, was for this adventure and to build this society and to test themselves, as opposed to now when Survivor's a bit more long in the tooth and the concept has been set up, people that go out there say, I can't wait to play this game. It's become less about like, man, I can't wait to really get into a squabble with a person twice my age about using the drinking water to wash their t-shirt. Uh, it's, it's much more about, hey, I can't wait to make an alliance to vote somebody out. And so there is a purity in this first season in so many ways, and one of them is that the both the show and the contestants sort of prided forming their own little, for lack of a better word, tribes and creating their own value system based on that when they had to vote people out. The phrase that Jeff uses as well is – sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm monopolizing a lot of talking. I will shut up uh, very much later. Um, a phrase that Jeff also uses in that sort of opening montage is he says they're in for the adventure of their lives. Mm-hmm. Adventure. In, mm-hmm. And that's the thing. People, when they signed up and, and signed up to to go on Survivor, they they were understood the basic premise that they were in the show where, you know, you could win a million dollars and you're going to vote people out and whatnot. But they were like, what, you mean I get to go to uh, an exotic location and, you know, build a shelter and, you know, again, create a society with people like that was more what drew people in. Whereas today it's more along the lines of I need to play the game of Survivor. So like like Mike is saying the reasons why people went out on the show have also varied and changed and modified through the years. And the people that showed up on the show, some of them showed up to play a game and win a million dollars, but some of them very much kind of didn't. And that does come into play as this season goes. Yeah. That's that. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that's one thing I wanted to say is that imagine a Cochrane. I don't mean to pick on Cochrane. Imagine Cochrane on survivor Borneo. He would not have fit in. That's true to a point, but it's not 100% true because, A, this is based on a show called Expedition Robinson, which had aired in Europe, Sweden. I forget exactly where it was. Sweden. Yeah, a couple years before this. So this was not a new concept. They just took a foreign game show, brought it over here, and packaged it for American TV. That's A. B, the producer of the show, Mark Burnett, already had another show he was known for, and he had a show called uh, Eco Challenge which was adventure racing. People love to challenge themselves in the wild, challenge themselves against nature, form teams of four, and they go through this huge obstacle course over all these miles and mountains and terrain. And it was very much a survivalist show. And that's the audience for Survivor. People thought, oh, Mark Burnett does Eco Challenge. He's just taking Eco Challenge, putting them on an island and making them vote each other out. So it's less hardcore than Eco Challenge, but it's still the basic concept. So there was a known market for this. It's those adventure racing people, people that love living outdoors, survivalists, people like Sue Hawk, who was a hunter, people like Richard Hatch, who loved negotiations and loved how to, he knew how to spearfish and catch food, food in, the, in the ocean. So, like, it was not a strategy game. This was an adventure or a survivalist game with all these adventure lovers throwing out there, and we're doing this European-style game show, which already existed. And then this is the last thing that I want to say, just uh, I have to get this on the record. This was not the first reality show. There was a show on Fox called Cops, which for years, they've been going on since the 80s, I think. There was The Real World. There was Road Rules on MTV. Those were big. So this was an established genre. What Survivor was the first at 
is they were the first one on network TV, on ABC, CBS, uh, NBC. So they were on CBS. That was a big deal because now we have a reality show on network TV, which we'd never really seen in America. And this is the other factor. It was a competition reality show, which, again, road rules, real world. They didn't do that. They just lived together until the season was over. It was just about conflict and seeing what their little society was like. Survivor was that, plus having to turn on each other and humiliate each other on national TV and vote them out. And that's why it was controversial at the time and also different. Right. I think outside of that, like maybe road rules from an American perspective was probably the closest to an actual what we call them now is competition reality shows as opposed to non-competition reality shows like the real world. And it's crazy in 2020 to think that there was a time when that format of shows didn't exist considering how much it proliferated and multiplied from there. But yeah, this was the first. And I think not only the the network uh, angle, but also the primetime angle as well, because Mm -hmm. at the time before streaming services and people's schedules became more flexible, I mean, that was the time you wanted if you were a TV show. And to, for them to invest time, I mean, it was a summer show, and summer tends to be, you know, they weren't necessarily putting it forward in the fall, which would mean that they really invested a lot of trust in Survivor, but they were able to make it become a, a big summer hit, more, so much so that, you know, I would argue that Big Brother, which then followed up uh, later on that year and became CBS's big summer show, like, was a big proving hit for them and the other networks that, oh yeah, reality TV in the summer could actually work as a concept. Yeah, and let's not gloss over what you just said about the summer. People don't know that. Summer is where they threw TV shows that they did not expect to be successful. <laughs> like that's, when, that's why they put Survivor in the summer, because they were not entirely sure this was going to be a hit. It was so different and so unique and just so weird that it was thrown in the summer, and it became a surprise hit, but it wasn't really a guaranteed hit. That's, that cannot be overlooked. They did not have a lot of faith in this. So... Okay, Let's well, I have two other, two other things. I got two oh, other things God. I want to say here because this, I think this is important. This isn't just me talking. Strap in, folks. <laughs> All right. The other thing is that the reason Survivor became a big hit, and this is something that never, ever, ever gets mentioned enough, and I have to bring it up just so it's documented, is that, A, it was controversial. When it was first announced, it was basically announced as people are going to go put up, be put on an island, and they were going to stay there until only one person could take it anymore. So a lot of people heard that. They said, you're going to put people on an island and someone may die? Mm -hmm. Like that was the way this was presented, and it was very controversial. This is like we're talking Jerry Springer-level controversial where people are like, has TV gone too far? This is like when these shows were starting to push the boundary on what they could get away with. And Survivor was very notorious from day one because people thought someone could die on that show and this should not be ethically allowed on TV. So it was already very controversial, and it had a lot of notoriety before it ever aired. And I should point out the other thing is that the legacy of Survivor as it aired, the time that it aired in 2000, was that, yes, it's a national phenomenon. Yes, it was one of the biggest things in TV ever. It was this huge phenomenon that everybody watched. But the general consensus was it was a good idea gone bad, that it was not fun at first, and then it got corrupted along the way and selfishness and you know greed won out in the end and the bad guys won and it was a perfect example of human nature going bad when money is involved and that's survivor's legacy at the time it was that that was why it got such a big audience outside just the general viewers because it was like oh my god i can't believe people are this horrible when money's involved that and the show where people eat bugs which we'll get to that is unfortunately one snapshot of the show that has been blown wildly out of proportion by 
the society in general. Yeah, and I have one other thing, just because I just learned this a couple years ago, and I didn't realize this. This is some when I learn new things about Borneo, it always fascinates me. Is that Mark Burnett? I saw a TV show with him on, and he was talking about there was a movie that came out in the summer of '99 that was the biggest inspiration for Survivor, bigger than anything else. He's like, Expedition Robinson was cool. I'm glad we had the rights to it. But why? The thing that inspired Mark Burnett to make the show the way he did. Do you know which movie he's talking about? It's the Blair Witch Project, right? It is. It's the Blair Witch Project because that movie was, they went out, they filmed a bunch of footage of people in nature and but scared these kids and basically went home, took this raw footage, edited it into a story that was made sense. And he's like, oh my God, you can just take raw documentary footage, edit it into something fascinating and like fictional and add all these special effects and start like music cues and stuff. And he's like, that was what Survivor was. It's really just the Blair Witch Project in an adventure game show. That's the He gives 100% credit to the Blair Witch Project. And you'll see it later in the season when we have a challenge dedicated to the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> so there you go. That's all my little trivia I got to drop here. That I don't, I don't think most people know that stuff. Now you're not going to talk for the next two hours? I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to pull a Jay Fisher. I'll be turning off my microphone for a while and taking a little nap. No. <laughs> no, that's so, my move. <laughs> all right. So uh, we'll do just one little thing. I want to get into the episodes, but I do, I, I want to put our listeners in the mindset. We're in the summer of 2000. Survivor is about to start. No one knows what it is. It's got notoriety. It's a, it's a summer show. It's going to be different. No one's ever seen anything like it. You're worried people are going to die on TV. Where were you guys in the summer of 2000? Just give us a quick history of where you were leading up to this first episode and how you responded to it. I was 10 years old, and um, I, I, I like like you're saying, Mara. I think it is important for us to remember that that Survivor really did push the boundaries on stuff, which is like kind of funny to go back and it just seems very kind of tame now in a lot of ways. Um, but like I, I remember just the buzz being about there's going to be this show where 15 people die, one person survives. And I remember my mom telling me about this show, and I don't know why my mom thought that like it was something that I'd be that interested in, but she recorded it on a VHS, and I don't even know that I actually watched it actually live. I, I know it was recorded, so I don't know if it was in the first week or something like that. It definitely was in the first two weeks it aired and stuff, but um, it's like Survivor not only starts for me the first time, like starting watching the show is one thing, but it also then kind of tuned me into pop culture more in general because I became so obsessed with Survivor. That's like where my first memories start is like, 2000 survivors airing all of a sudden i'm paying attention now more to the news and entertainment shows and things like that so um for me it was a um it opened the door for me to the the world of pop culture and television so i was also 10 years old when the show aired i think actually uh, i think i think the finale aired i want to say like a few days after my 11th birthday uh in the summer of 2000 so obviously sort of being at that age you know i had a weird sense of television. You know, I, I was used to cartoons of both child and adult. You know, the, the biggest, I guess, experience I'd had with primetime television was The Simpsons and, you know, The Critic, and maybe occasionally my parents would let me watch some must-see TV. Uh, and so, obviously, I, I really hadn't had any experience with the concept of reality television. I will admit, I, I will, you know, come clean here. My first episode was not until episode six, but uh, obviously, there's a lot of stuff on the previously on, and there's a lot of stuff in the news that really like got me caught up 
on everything that had happened in between. Even though when we're at Fallen Comrades and Jeff's like, write down everyone who did the legs of the, uh, you know, the paddling and the running. I'm like, what the, what challenge is he talking about? I never saw anything like that. But what really caught on to me was just the, the people that we were watching. It was less so about, you know, what was going on. And the fact that I was dropped into the middle of it, I think just speaks to the power of the storytelling of Borneo, where it was really able to outline these people and the roles that they play. And uh, to sort of copy a bit of what Paul said, I mean, this opened me up to so much. This was a show where, like, obviously, I'm sure we'll talk at some point about how the Borneo contestants became overnight celebrities. And any time a Borneo contestant was appearing in something, I was going to check it out. I was going to watch The Weakest Link. My family and I were the only people in our movie theater who saw The Animal because it had Colleen Haskell in it. The, like, everything <laughs> Borneo-related... I made sure to check out, and it was one of those first things that I became wholeheartedly invested in as a television project. And as at such a formative age, I feel like that was like just monumental to building me as a person and choosing what I'm invested in. Because I mean, this was the cornerstone for the love of reality television that I have to this day. Uh, I will go next because I'm the next youngest, I suppose. Uh, I was when it aired. It aired sort of in the summer of uh the end of my first year of college so i was you know the, the uh, 19 years old and i watched it and tuned in because a it was you know school was getting out and you're kind of you know looking to veg out and just sit around and do nothing but play video games and watch tv but a bunch of people that i met in college talked about they were like they were like we've heard about this show that's happening where like they're putting people on an island and and they got to like survive and one of them's going to be left standing and like people talked about it not not everybody but uh, certain weird friends of mine sort of talked about this and talked about how this was utterly fascinating and so i sort of sort of keyed in on that and said hmm that seems weird and strange so i then like saw some sort of preview article or something about it i forget where but you know they were just briefly talking about it and i just said this seems like a thing that maybe i should check in on and it didn't have like the most amount of buzz ever to it but it had some uh, and and it just became sort of a, a an idol well i'm just gonna watch it and just see what it looks like kind of thing and every you know it blew up from that point and then you were sort of glued and you sort of had to keep watching it and then the articles and the reviews and everything started to pour in after the show took place and and I liked to I liked to read those sorts of things and sort of absorb what was happening but it was just from some college people talking about the the potentiality of this game show that got me to maybe key in on what was happening and the rest is history Okay yeah and for me I've if you guys read my book I wrote about this quite extensively but it's my history is that I was a I was 25 I think I'd maybe just turned 26 in 2000 and I was a you know, programmer, just, uh, I had some aspirations of being a writer, but I just like watching pop culture and I read a bunch of stuff on the internet. And again, internet message boards were a big deal back then. People would watch their shows and talk about them. I was a big into the real world is in the uh, road rules. I was really big into this whole reality TV pop culture world already. And I know survivor came out and Howard Stern, my, one of my heroes as a kid, I I used to listen to his radio show every day. And Howard Stern was, you know, the original shock jock, the most offensive line crossing guy of them all. I loved him. And I know Howard Stern was fascinated by this show, Survivor. He's like, they're going to put people on an island and they're going to let people die. 
And a Robin, his sidekick, is like, they're not going to do that. And he's like, I swear to God, I read about it. That's what it's going to be. He's like, and people think I'm bad. Like, look, look at this show. Look at this crap they're putting on TV. So Howard Stern was flabbergasted. This got allowed. This got, you know, approved. And so I was, as a dedicated Howard Stern listener, I was very fascinated. So I turned, tuned in for the first night of the show. I'd never seen Expedition Robinson. I'd never seen Eco Challenge. I had no idea what it was going to be. And my instinct was, you know, it's it's just normal people live on an island. It's really just real the real world. It's just forming their own little society and, you know, getting to know each other and finding who's going to bring what to the table and having conflict. And then they have to start voting each other out. And I was actually disappointed with the first episode because that was not in the press materials that I'd read. Mm. Like, well, if they're voting each other out, that's not fun. Like that, that's not really survival of the fittest because it was pitched as survival of the fittest. So my first instinct was disappointment. But what happened is after that first episode, I just sat there and thought about it all week. That's the only thing I was thinking about was Survivor. I'm like, this is a really it's I was like, there's more going on in this show than I think most people realize. It's not just society and voting each other out because I have a background in sociology. I have a background in psychology. That's what I majored in in school. And sociology is, you know, the study of how how societies form, how groups form. And there's a, a great quote I remember from the Stephen King book, The Stand, that has always stuck in my head for all these years about how societies form and how they first form and then fall apart. And it's like, you know, one person is just a person. You have two people. You have a society. You have three people. You introduce prejudice. You have four people. You introduce, you know, guarding of resources. You have five people. You introduce war. And like, okay, so this is kind of like society backwards. We're going to yeah. start with these small groups and they will be forced to work together like they're it's like in that's how you get people to bond in wartime you throw them together on the front lines they fight their immediate best friends even though they've never known each other before that because they've been forced to work towards a goal together and like but this show is going to be interesting because they're forced to form a society but then they'll all have to turn on each other and i was thinking on real world if they voted each other out that would get really nasty and so i was thinking about it all week i'm like this show is going to be horrible isn't it i was thinking Wow, because like they have to they have to make bonds and then immediately smash the bonds. And I was just thinking down the road where it was going to go. I'm like, okay, well they'll get rid of the old people first, and then the uh, loud, annoying people. And like, who's going to win this? This is really fascinating. So I was like, I was onto it from a psychology point of view right from the start. I'm like, this is going to get really evil and ugly down the road. It's and most people weren't realizing it. They were just talking about, oh, it's so cool. They're catching fish. They're building shelters. I'm like. This is a nasty, nasty psychology experiment that would never be allowed in a college campus because it's like too horrible. They'd have to debrief people afterwards because they've just been humiliated on national TV and shunned. So I was intrigued by the evilness of it, but it wasn't the someone's going to die. I was just seeing down the road going, this is going to get really horrible later, isn't it? So that was what really kept me going with it. Well, yeah, it's the Stanford prison experiment, except instead of being randomly assigned the position of guard, you try to angle to become the guard. Exactly. That's the thing. Yeah. So the more you knew about psychology and sociology, I think you were really interested in this from right from the bat, right from the start, but for a different reason, because you could see, oh, this is not going to be fun down the road, is it? And so it was like a, almost like a car, like a, seeing a car crash. I have to see where this is going now because I think it will not probably not go well. And it was funny because like a lot of people were horrified and shocked later that it did end up going badly. But I was like, yeah, that's exactly what was going to happen all along. I was surprised people were surprised by that. So that is our individual histories with the show, where we come from. Everyone's got a story, I'm sure. I'm 
feel free to write us if you want to tell where you were in 2000. But again, this was really just a really big show at a unique time in history when nothing else was on during the summer. And it was unique and new and people were writing think pieces about it and people were writing articles and opinion stuff. And with that, we're going to go right into Borneo, which again is really just a hanging out movie. It's like Jackie Brown. It's just people that are interesting and fun to watch. And we're watching them adapt to this really weird new game with new rules and new ethics and money dangled in front of them at the end. And it's all being broadcast on national TV, which is another big factor because people have to realize if they do bad things, it might be judged by people at home and they have jobs and loved ones and families. So it's like, there's a lot going on in the season, but that's once again, why I think calling it boring is really not doing it justice. Cause it's not boring. It's just different. It's very complex. Well, and that element of national TV does play a big role. You hear it a lot. Them bring up the, the, you know, the term about the American viewing public and national television. And I think, you know, newer, newer comers to the show have to put themselves back in the the time frame of what 2000 was, where it very much was. There were the big networks, there were cable shows and stuff, but it still was very much most people who watched television were consuming the same things because there were a few main options every night. Those are the things that were being covered on even the morning news. It was not a, you know, where we are now as a society where you really choose what you consume. It was one of those things where it was so big and on, you know, it became such a big deal that even if you weren't an obsessive survivor fan, you watched it because that's what was on TV and that's what people were talking about. So there was like, like you say about how you're going to be portrayed and those types of things really were an important thing because Everyone was going to watch it. Everyone was going to talk about it. Even if you weren't watching the show, you were going to read about it in the newspaper the next day. So, yeah, it was a big deal. Not only that, but, I mean, at least one person is going to go on to Survivor Borneo in order to create an acting career and put their face out there on national television. Yeah, probably more than one. I know that Dr. Sean was definitely one of them, to the point where uh, we'll get to it in episode three when he feels like he might be going instead of Stacey. He actually makes a plea to everyone of, like, I want to be an actor. Keep me around so I can get my face out there longer and I can, you know, get some more modeling deals when I come back. Yeah. And that's that's the interesting thing when discussing survivor strategy in Borneo. People says there's no strategy. There's tons of strategy in this season. It just might not be what you're used to. Everyone comes in with a different agenda, a different goal and a different game they're playing for different stakes. And that's very important to keep in mind as we go through this. It's it's hugely important to to go through it because that's it you know we don't have a game like 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 today uh you know again the premises are the same there's a million dollars at the end you're voting people out but they don't understand you know not everyone's there to play everyone's there for different reasons and i and i said this before and you just said it and i'm literally rehashing it again but when you watch this season and i urge all of you take some time and and re-watch survivor borneo it's fascinating in, in certain elements. And I think something that you try to really try to sit there, some people will literally just flat out tell you why they're there. But some people, it's it's a little more ambiguous. But I think that that's a, a game that you as a viewer can play, which is this character, why are they really there? And I think that the answers are going to vary, and they're going to vary more than perhaps people that go on the show today. I think that mm-hmm. most people who go on the show today have more 
more of the similar reasons why they're on the show. I'm not saying that everyone's the same and everyone has the same reason, but more people today have the same reason. Whereas with these these 16 characters in Survivor Borneo, their reasons for being on the show are all going to be so vastly different. And that is so important to understanding what the hell is going on there. Because if you're just looking at it from this game gameplay perspective, you're going to be confused. And yes, it is confusing. Even if you know things, it is confusing because they're figuring it all out and they're just trying to get all these sorts of, of things to work. But the reason why people are out there is going to dictate what they do and how they act out there initially and as things kind of go along. And it's so crucial to understanding Borneo. All right. And with that, we are going to go into the opening of the first episode. Oh, my funny. God. I know. Well, it's funny watching these episodes. I haven't watched Borneo in 10 years, but like I know every single little detail about these episodes. I'm just, oh, yeah, this music cue here. I remember all the music cues when they happen in each scene. It's just well, it was to be weird, fair, man. the whole first episode, it's just. Yeah, to show the transition and a little bit of like uh, chunky guitar music when Jeff Probst does his narrations. Wait a minute, how dare you guys not give proper credit to. That's some good Landau. That's right. But that's how we open is that this opening again, the music of the first season was so iconic. It was almost as big as the show itself. And that's hey, the, the... Hey, 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 do you remember when Russ Landau used to do music for Survivor? <laughs> Jay, we're not here to be bitter. We've, we're trying our best. Oh, oh um, my bad. My, before, my bad. Before we jump off the boat, can I um, share with you the a scene that I watched today that I remember existed, but I hadn't dug it up in a while? If you go on to, it's like, a, it's kind of hard to find because it's on like, so there's the Survivor uh, Borneo DVD set. And in that set, they include um, the two and a half hour special, like Survivor Most Outrageous Moments. Oh, yeah. And, I, remember, um, I remember getting that like separate because they did that for yeah. Borneo and Australia, right? It was like the latest. Right. Initially, those were separate. Yeah, those were separate little like pieces that came out like even out on VHS um, way back in the day. And so anyway, that comes with the DVD set. And on there, if you watch that, it kind of does a recap of the season, but it does kind of a lot of like, it would be kind of like what we you know, what we called for a long time, those like recap episodes where they would have kind of extended never before seen footage. And it was so weird for me to watch this today. And I, I, I saw it probably 10 years ago, the last time I saw it, but like there's footage of them getting on the boat and that's the first time they can start talking. Like they've been together for a long time, going to LA, flying to Malaysia and all these things. But it's like on tape, these people interacting for the first time. And like Greg uh, like meets Richard. He goes, hi, I'm, he goes, I'm rich. He goes, Mitch, no rich. Oh, Hey. <laughs> and like, just these weird, like that they're, they're meeting for the first time. And they're like, my, I like like Sonia and Sue meeting in, so it's like, well, what do you do? And she's like, oh, I drive trucks. Oh, wow. Like, like just like all these very like weird, weird to have on tape the first time these people are meeting each other, <laughs> introducing themselves, these people that we know so well that like it was it's a very weird. If you can dig that up, I really recommend it because it's it was fascinating to see them um, interact for the first time. According, yeah, according to Burnett, um, during that get to know you thing. Rudy had sniffed out or maybe he just assumed that they were going to have a gay person 
in their cast, but the one person he knew was definitely not gay was Richard Hatch because Richard had a son. That's the one person Rudy at that time was convinced <laughs> was definitely not gay. That's what's well, funny too, and you can tell like Rudy was kind of working his material. You know, some of the things like you know Rob says, you know, we'll always tell, we'll talk about the time he spent with Rudy and how he'll repeat stories a lot. And I could definitely catch this. His first interaction with BB was, ah, well, if these kids start talking about MTV, I don't know what they're going to be talking about. <laughs> I was like, oh, he's going to use that one again later. <laughs> Five minutes later, you hear Rudy, stop rubbing up against me. Move back. <laughs> All right. Although, so, although from a gameplay standpoint, in a lot of those early things where you see like them meeting and you see them sort of getting out there, I, I don't know if Richard mentions it a ton when we get to the actual episode and actually on the island. But Richard is thinking about the 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 mechanics of the game, not that other people aren't. And, I, and again, I don't want to keep promoting this sort of rumor or, or false information that Richard was the only one who played because that's not true. But Richard was thinking about the game structure and, and other people may have been when he was talking to people, they were talking about like teams. And he basically was like, we need to figure out how we're going to win all the immunities because you know, you vote people out, and if you're at the place where you're voting people out, you're losing. And so, you know, Richard's first sort of concept was you need to win all the immunities, which is just an, an interesting sort of concept before we even get out to the island. Richard invented winning immunities. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. What a guy. <laughs> all right. So we open with the the Russ Landau music, and uh, they're all in the boat. And Jeff Probst, I think, gives the first vo the narration, the voiceover, like it's an adventure of a lifetime. Sixteen strangers forced to band together, carve out a new existence. And this is the important part that they've kind of dropped this part of the show over the years, where he says they will be totally accountable for their actions. They must learn to adapt, or they'll be voted off. And so it's basically right from the start, he's telling you that you will only win based on the judgment of your peers. And so you better be nice to them and treat them correctly because you'll be judged. And boy, has that changed over the years. He really has dropped that. But that, that's a very important thing. It's like literally the first sentence he says. Oh, wow. I thought there was a re-edit done by some Texan guy that said that America will get a percentage of the vote to determine who wins the million dollars. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that comes a little later, later in the show's history. But yeah, so... Uh, and then he says, he explains the rules. They'll be given five minutes, two minutes, I forget, to grab all their supplies, jump off the boat, and the game begins. And that's really it. There's no rules. Grab all the supplies, jump off, and you're on your own from here on out. And then basically I'll see you in 39 days with the winner. Although I do have to answer the one question a lot of people ask me this all the time. Why is Survivor 39 days? And I will tell you that having... <laughs> Jay loves when I talk about my stories, but having written many uh, Survivor stories over the years, I have learned that it's because the structure of the episodes works out perfectly to 39 days. There's 12 episodes, which is someone votes off every three days. 12 times three is 36. And then someone voted out day 37, 38. And on 39, you have the winner. So it's just it's just a structure because so you can vote someone out every three days. And then the final four also makes up three days. That's it. That's 39. That's why. Can we talk about the opening credits for a second? Because back in the day, yes, people, yes. there were opening credits to Survivor. And, I mean, there's so many infamous things here. Uh, there's Jenna Lewis with, like, the quivering lower lip. The infamous shot that I saw on many Survivor Sucks avatars of Colleen surrounded by the flies. Uh, and the one thing that I totally forgot about, and look, 
we'll certainly get into it. Survivor Borneo was a little sloppy in terms of, especially I think it's marketing <laughs> when it came to spoiling things. I forgot that Rudy, one of Rudy's shots in the opening flat out shows him with like a full beard, which you can imagine is just a huge red flag of like, yeah, he definitely spends a good amount of time <laughs> in the game to produce a full beard to the point where they take a picture of him. Isn't he behind Jenna too? Yeah. There's another shot where Jenna's there and we see someone from the other tribe behind oh, her in the it's, shot. No, it's it's Jenna and her quivering lip and you can see Wigglesworth behind her. Wiggles, that's who it is. Okay, yeah. It's, right off the bat, they spoil these two will both make the merge. Or at least they're going to be together. But yeah, I think that, it, I don't think it completely holds up, but you can see that like the the Toggy Four, like Richard and Kelly and um, and Sue and Rudy, like they've they've got... It, you know, because some of the some of the characters in the opening have like sort of action shots of them doing something, you know, like turning to the camera or or whatnot. And then some of them are just pictures, you know, and, and some some of the people who have some action shots like Dirk's got like an action shot. Right. And, you know, Dirk goes early and whatnot and and and, and things like that. But but the Toggy Four all have uh, action shots. They're not pictures. You know, and in, in some of the the people that kind of go further, like Jervis and Jenna Lewis and stuff like that, like they've got action shots, whereas like Sonia's a picture, Doctor Sean's a picture. You know, like like you know, certain people are pictures, whereas whereas there's action shots. And I'm not saying it's a spoiler because you know it's not completely 100%. Like I think Stacy Stillman is an action shot and and things like that. But it's uh it's it's funny, and and I think that you're totally right because you can see Rudy with like full on beard and 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 all that sort of stuff. But I think that they they sort of do highlight some of their bigger characters via that. And this ties into something that was very prevalent at the time, and most fans will know this, but if you don't, if you weren't there, you may not know this. The fans hunting for spoilers in the show was incessant as the season went along. They're always looking for little hints in the episode. What are they tipping off? What's going to happen? Are they are they giving us hints? And it got so prevalent that the producers started putting in hints in the show just to piss people or just to mess with people. So this was a very big part of the Survivor experience, the spoiler hunting. Yeah, we're going to get into Jervis X in a, in a couple of podcasts. Good old yeah. Jervis X. And Jervis X was just one of them. There was a lot. All I'm hearing is Jervis Sex, and I was like, whoa, what did I miss on the well, DVD? He does, I mean, he does find out about, you know, the product of those activities later on in the season. <laughs> okay, so we got the credits, we got the opening sequence, and now we do this part of these early seasons that I love and I really wish they'd bring these back where they go over all the contestants and they show what they do in real life and they give you a little overview of them. Well, you, you say in real life, but there are some weird choices here. <laughs> like Sue the truck driver wearing a hard hat. Uh, Jervis, his job is apparently blowing cold air. Uh, I think my favorite is, well, I like BB's because BB's is reading a newspaper despite him being a, a CEO. <laughs> Um, I think Ramona is her just sitting in front of a giant spool. But my favorite might be um, my, my favorite might be Colleen's because it's this weird thing of her like holding a pencil and clipboard in front of about thirty television screens that all are showing the same clip of someone walking down the stairs. Which like again, if you're talking about slice of life, this is the weirdest setup for possible shots that I could possibly think. I I have to give a shout out to the one of uh, Sonia being the first one gone. They don't even give her a proper intro clip. It's just her sitting on a casting couch. <laughs> and they also don't give her a job, too. They say cancer survivor. Yes. Here's Sonia Christopher, cannon fodder. 
Yeah, but you know, here's here's the thing as well. Survivor these days, well, not not just these days, but Survivor in the coming seasons, the, their budget from the from the network and whatnot is going to increase significantly because the show is going to have success. As you said, this is a summer release. It's Mark Burnett, so there's a little bit of uh, trust the, with the fact that Mark Burnett is got his name behind this, and so that's sort of probably why Survivor got greenlit in the first place. But as you can see, this is a summer release. They're just taking a flyer on it and seeing what's happening. So there is a budget for the show, and I mean, hey, they had to have a crew, and they went all the way to Borneo to shoot this thing, and they got the Americans out there to do the show. But they don't have all the money that they're going to have in the future. So my guess is that these action shots that you have that we're making fun of were – probably not done with the greatest amount of care, the greatest amount of time and the greatest amount of money in place. <laughs> All I can think about is when, when later on, when Kelly, uh, you know, the final five gets to see, um, oh, this, the first episode this opening cut. And like, I think it's, it's doesn't, it's not a hundred percent sure if this is who it is. Like the way it's edited, it's like, they're showing like Stacy and then it, you can tell she's saying to Jeff, that's her. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I can think about now is when that airs. <laughs> Here's my here's my experience with this uh, <laughs> this the credit sequence is that well there's two things the first off is they use their last names here, and this is something I don't know if a lot of people notice is that say Dirk Bean a dairy farmer Richard Hatch a corporate consultant, that's one of the few times they used the players last names when Survivor was airing, I don't know if people would remember this but on the website they would never put the players last names it was just their first names. And I think because once they realized the show might be fairly popular, they were worried about the privacy for the players because people could, you know, Google them and try to track them down. And so this opening sequence is one of the few times you hear last names, although there's a, like three or four times during the season, someone says Hatch or Wigglesworth. But for the most part, it was just first names other than this opening sequence. And the other thing I wanted to point out is I, I, I remember this very vividly. They're announcing all these players uh, Professions like, oh, river guy, you know, outdoor adventurist, uh, cancer survivor, truck driver. And then they got to Gretchen and it said preschool teacher and it showed her with a bunch of kids. <laughs> yeah. And I remember laughing. I'm like, why are you laughing? I'm like, yeah, preschool teacher is going to do real well. And my wife, who has worked with preschool kids, is like, shut up. Preschool teachers are very organized and work very hard. You shut your mouth. Well, so this, this, I'll always this remember also that. Two episodes before Gretchen's like, oh, yeah. And I, before I was a preschool teacher, I spent all this time working for the Navy or the, the Army, you know, doing survivalist training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel bad. I decided to dissed Gretchen the first viewing. But I did learn later, and this is something that's not all that well known either, is that not only was she in survival school, like you said, she taught prisoners who were captured how to withstand torture. So Gretchen is a bit of a badass, if people don't know that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try finding another one of those on the show. I teach people how to withstand torture. It, it, it's, it's really cool as well that, you know, we're, we're going to get these, 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 these stereotypes. Because teachers do come, you know, on Survivor all the time. You know, Gretchen's a, an interesting case because it's preschool teacher and then also, like, you know, survivalist who makes her own granola, apparently. But, like... You know, we're going to get such unique and fun people such as cancer survivor and pharmaceutical sales coming up. It's just going to be so great to learn about these great professions. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea what pharmaceutical sales were until yeah, and I would say that's why they stopped doing it. It's like, okay, we don't, we can't take, we only have so many shots in front of a pharmacy that we can do. We need to, stop, <laughs> we need to figure out how we can show pharmaceutical sales. What I have to say, the thing is that, the you know, I've seen Borneo so many times looking at this cast. This is the first time I really had this realization how weird it is with the ages of contestants. Like, obviously, we think about 
it's like they made this choice to put three extremely old people in terms of survivor ages on the show, right? We have two people in their 60s, BB and Sonia. We have Rudy in, in his 70s. And then the next oldest are these people who are in their late 30s, who are mm-hmm. almost 40. But you have Sue, Gretchen, and Richard, who are all not quite 40. There's no one in their 40s, no one in their 50s. So there's this huge jump happens where there's this, this 20 years that there's no one in that age group. And I think it's first hitting me for the first time now because as someone who's about to enter his 30s, I'm like looking at, oh, wow, like Sue and Rich are way more my contemporaries now than I ever thought they would be. Like that age <laughs> is so much closer now. And so it's weird to me that they, there's no one in that 40, 50 age bracket. But I think it also comes down to life experience as well. Like Dr. Sean and Jervis are the same age, but they are completely different people. And I think it's just depends on like both where they came from and where they were up to this point. So it almost seems like, I, I do think that like people like Sue and Rich do not necessarily uh, imbue the properties of someone in their thirties. And I think it's maybe just because of the lives that they've led up to that point. And maybe just the way that the, like the air they have when they walk around sort of exude someone that's older than they actually are. Yeah. I, I, that, I want to bring up one thing that leads into is that a lot of people, you know, the, the casting on Borneo, Mark Burnett has said, basically, I wanted to do Gilligan's Island. I want someone who represents every single viewer and they try to get people that'll match, you know, more than one type of demographic, just so everyone's represented. And one hit that Survivor has taken over the years is that, especially in the early days, they, you know, they weren't all that diverse. And that's one of the hits that Survivor would always take. Oh, they always just cast lazy black people just to enforce the stereotype. And I have to defend the show a little bit here, especially in the first two seasons, because you heard that a lot back in the day. Oh, they just always cast lazy people and put them in the black token casting spot. But Ramona was a very accomplished biochemist, I believe. And, she was and, like, and like a fourth level black belt. Yeah, so she just the only reason Ramona didn't become a big name in the cast, she got sick. She gets negated really early, but they like that that backs up that I mean that that you know negates the argument that Survivor didn't really care about their black audience. Like Ramona was very accomplished, very smart, intelligent. And then the second season they had Nick Brown who was a, you know, an attorney, law school plus model. Like so I don't think Survivor deserved that hit that it got in the early days that it was it didn't cast black people well because Ramona just she just didn't live up to her potential because she got sick but she on paper was as accomplished as anybody in this cast. They were just really focusing making sure that you know one eighth of the cast was from Wisconsin. We really want to make sure we get that <laughs> that area you gotta covered. Got to take care here. of that dairy farmer contingent. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about Dirk in a second. I love Dirk. Dirk doesn't get his proper due. Yeah, Dirk makes often. Dirk makes the biggest impression uh, when we get to them making landfall. Like Dirk is shot out of a cannon when this thing first starts off. <laughs> okay, Look, yeah. So let's do this. Wisconsin this. sells. I mean, making a murderer was such a huge hit, right? Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, let's go to the. So they jump off the boat. They all paddle in and it's all shot very cinematically and the music's big time. I mean, over the top here, but we get to the beach and this is something I had kind of forgotten. And I know Mike just talked about it. They get to Toggy beach and I swear to God, Dirk is the leader for the first half of this episode. Well, he is, but in a certain regard, Dirk really needs to go to the bathroom. I think because it's all about like, Richard being like, you know, being Richard, which is Richard's theme in the first episode, is that he's going to want to treat this like the boardroom. So he's like, okay, can we all get together and, like, let's all stop and talk about what we want to do before we do anything? And Dirk's like, can I piss first? Uh, And then later on, he's like, all right, we got the shelter. We've got the latrine taken care of. So Dirk's 
things that were top of mind were very prevalent because he was very, very vocal besides Sue talking about how they apparently have uh, some rebar that they can use to build a mud hut. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's my one takeaway is Dirk is by far the most vocal of the Toggies, which is very odd for him being the youngest. Like, I wouldn't expect him to be the natural leader, but like you think of Survivor Borneo, you think the Toggy Four running the shots, Sue and Richard calling the shots, being the leaders, but right from the bat, watching the Toggies run around, you know, like the chickens with their head cut off, but it's always Dirk and, and Sue is in there a little bit, but it's mostly Dirk at telling everyone what they're going to be doing, just taking a leadership position right from the start. Richard's going to go perch up in a tree and pout for a while, but yeah, I forgot how prominent Dirk really is here for the first couple of days. Who gets the first confessional? Was it Rudy? It was Rudy. Yeah, he was talking about how, uh, in true Rudy fashion, insulting someone, saying it was dumb for them to just be dragging three crates behind them, and instead they were able to load it onto the raft to make themselves go a lot faster. <laughs> yes. Mr. Pragmatic starts off the season with the first confessional, dragging them boxes was dumb. <sighs> so let's go over to Pagong. What's happening on Pagong right off the bat, besides Ramona puking her guts out? <laughs> They're probably just having a party. Um, that's all Pagong does, right? It's just party for, for six well, there's, episodes. There's that infamous shot that has been used time and time again over the past 20 years of Jervis making landfall and hooting and hollering while he has his arms extended. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that shot is I have a friend named George Hands who I think he had audition for historians, but he went out to Borneo. They have a, a resort there. You can go see where they actually film Borneo. And he stood right in that exact spot where Jervis, you know, greeted the ocean by holding his arms out. And there's a very distinct tree right behind Jervis that sticks out. George just got a picture of himself standing under that tree. I'm like, I know exactly where that tree is because it's so memorable, that shot of Jervis. Cool. And, yeah. And I think Ramona has the first confessional here. Says, I'm sick. So <laughs> if you had Ramona in your pool for the first Pagong confessional, then you win. <laughs> well, she even said in that, that scene I was talking about ahead of time, she's like, yeah, after two hours on this boat, I'm going to be done. Like, I'm going to get so sick there. So that really just, you know, everyone who talks about Borneo, everyone in the cast will just say she got so sick and was it was so hard for her to recover after that. Yeah, apparently she also swallowed a good amount of seawater on the raft trip in. So I think that was probably the biggest contributor to her. Like, because, I mean, as soon as she, like, gets off the raft she's like retching along the side and she's like just get me to the land and then she has that confessional as you said mario with her like slouched over in the nets saying this is day one so i mean i guess good <laughs> on her for making it 12 11 days longer in the game than even she would have counted but yeah i think it was really a series of unfortunate events that happened with this water landing that really put her on the wrong foot yeah ramona it's funny because no one remembers her you think of the borneo cash she's the one everyone always forgets she was there almost two weeks. I always forget that. Man, she had to tough this out for two weeks, and you don't remember a thing she did the whole season. It's kind of sad that she never got the fame that some of the other ones did. The only quote I think about with Ramona is the one that my brother and I quote all the time. At one point in these first couple episodes, BB is complaining about her and says, you know, and she's just – she's a real drag. She uh, she eats our food, drinks our water, takes up room in the hut. <laughs> so we always talk about like what a, like a dick like thing to say that is like not only is she eating and drinking but she takes up room in our hut she's she breathing our air <laughs> she, has, she has mass <laughs> <laughs> oh BB alright so let's go over to Toggy and we get the first real conflict on Toggy and it's very I mean, it worked out so fortuitously for the producers that this happened on first day, the Richard and Sue scene. 
And I know Mike from the book, Mark Burnett talks about that endlessly, how amazing it was that it worked out that way. That had that happened to be the first scene with Richard saying, we need to do like corporate. And mm-hmm. Sue saying, no, corporate won't work out in the bush. I'm just a redneck and your world won't work out here. And Action, like, oh, Richard, action. Yeah. He's like, oh, my God, we knew we had TV gold right off the bat when we got that conversation. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, I, I don't know how much Richard Hatch, I mean, he's perched in a freaking tree, like the Cheshire Cat. And part of you has to wonder, like, how much is he doing this for TV time? And how much is this him genuinely trying to, like, create a corporate atmosphere like they're on as some sort of retreat? But I love the fact that the edit of the scene makes it feel like he never gets out of the tree until a certain point that he just stays up there the entire time and just nobody gathers around him. But yeah, I mean, it's going to speak to the fact that even though these two will work with one another, they come from such completely different worlds. And really, this is part of Richard's giant arc in the first episode alone, where he really is an outlier from the beginning in trying to approach this the way that he typically does, only to realize, oh yeah, when you take away the office, office things are not necessarily going to work here. And he's going to realize that later on. But I do love the whole action, Richard, and then Richard saying, well, you don't want to act ahead. Uh, But it also cuts to arguably one of the biggest episode one confessionals, if not one of the most foreshadowing confessionals in Survivor history. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll talk about this. This is the... (laughs) So this is where we get the confessional from Richard, where he says, man, people don't like me. They think I'm cocky. He's like, wow, you know, if they think I'm cocky now, just imagine if they're listening to me behind the scenes. And he says, because I'm the winner. I've got the million-dollar check already written. And it's that kind of cocky attitude that makes people really hate your guts. So, and of course, that was an obvious spoiler. Now, I hope you guys realize Richard wins this season. I hope we're not ruining that for you. But that was Mark Burnett really just playing with the audience saying that he's inserting Richard's winner quote right there in episode one. But because Richard has such a horrible episode one, he doesn't fit in with anybody. There's no danger in seeing that as a spoiler quote. Nobody really saw that at the time as a spoiler quote. They saw that as Richard just being a blowhard and he's probably going to go home first. Although I do have to bring up one thing you said about Sue and Richard in that scene is that not only is it neat that they had that corporate versus, you know, Bush discussion, but to me, it's all almost as much just as fascinating that, you see in their dynamic that Sue will always be the dominant force in their relationship. And that's mm-hmm. one thing I want to make sure is is mentioned many times in this podcast that, yeah, oh, Richard invented the alliance. Richard is the only one who was playing. No, Sue was the dominant force on that alliance, and he had to play around Sue and cater to her whims because she was much more dominant than he was most of the time. So don't forget that. Yeah, I would say that Sue's and Hawk is one of the biggest quote-unquote players of Survivor Borneo, which again is – Surprising, given you, you like, what do we think about her? Oh, her super bitter jury speech with the snakes and the rats. But no, I mean, she's the one to get with Kelly later on to bring Richard in. You know, when Sean and Dirk are trying to, you know, work against the others, they really think that Sue is the one that has to go because she's sort of the fulcrum behind everything. Like, she's used to the the bush as it was as well. So I think she was like perfectly suited to hit this the the ground running, and that she had the survivalist skills to keep her head down but at the same time also make connections with people and also spurn other people in the case of getting rid of someone like stacy in order to connect with people that she would rather work with sue were you running things no not that i know about no (laughs) tapioca oh yeah okay yeah so 
It cannot be stated enough how much of a douche Richard is in this first scene. And I know in Mark Burnett's book, he flat out says Richard was going to be the first one voted out. That, that was he was destined because everyone hated him. And you see it in this first scene with they're all working and Richard's just up in his tree. Hey, guys, want to listen to me? Hey, can I help? Uh, I'm up here in the tree. And they just ignore him. And then later he sits down and they go through the big talk where he's talking about group dynamics and how groups work. And they just flat out ignore him. And Sean's like, yeah, I wasn't listening. Sorry. Like they, Richard could not fit in any worse on this first day if he had tried. So there's an interesting quote here, though, where Richard says, if you're getting aggravated at someone, stop trying to make your point and help them make theirs. And I do feel like that's foundational in him at least improving his place within the tribe. Like he's realizing that, okay, we just have a fundamental disagreement when it comes to the way we see things or the way we should do this activity. And I think he realizes early on, and Rudy's going to have this moment later on as well, infamously, of like, okay, I need to adapt immediately. And what that means is, hey, if people want to do something, I'll work with them to do it. I want to be viewed as cooperative and as a team player because in this game immediately, the tall nails are going to be the ones that are going to be hammered down. Yeah, that's the thing. He is saying all the correct things, just nobody wants to hear it. And that's Richard's struggle. He has to learn what other people want to hear, and that will be a, a tough lesson for him. And so once again, just to crap all over this belief that he walks in there and understands the game and dominates it from day one. That is not true at all. I would I would argue he doesn't really even become powerful at all until he gets fishing gear. That's when he really mm -hmm. starts having value. Well, I think because to Richard, it, again, it goes to that, back to that point where, you know, he was basically thinking as they were getting onto the island, how are we going to win all of these immunity challenges? So Richard's not thinking about voting alliance strategy. Like maybe he is at some point, but like that's all on the back burner because his focus right now is we need to win these challenges. And so he's less about working around camp and trying to get the shelter built and all of these sorts of bonding, you know, day one kind of exercises. He wants to bring the team together. So that's why he's trying to get this corporate talk and, you know, hey, let's let's figure out what our process is. How are we going to, you know, approve of things and go through things? Because to him, the the creating of the shelter and everything like that is irrelevant. What's what's important is winning that challenge, even though he's not necessarily saying that when he's up in the tree, those beforehand, that's his mindset. His mindset is team needs to win challenge because that's how you win survivor is you don't go to the place where you vote people out because voting people out means you lose uh, if you're voted out. So I think that Richard right now, you know, his priority is basically like different from what everyone else's priority is. And I think Richard under, you know, starts to understand that, you know, just as you said, Mike, with that quote, like he's like, I need to figure out what everyone else's priority is and try to figure fit that in and then try to get my priorities and their priorities to kind of match up a little bit. And his priority of trying to stay in the game and trying to win immunity sort starts to line up just naturally because people are going to be in a competition and, you know, are going to want to uh, do well in the competition. So I think that, you know, with Richard, he was he was literally just like, hey, guys, we have to win immunities. How are we going to, you know, come together as a team and all of that sort of thing? And the uh, the rest of the team is just got different priorities dig a latrine get a shelter built do the thing we're in the bush we're trying to survive so it's literally richard just trying to uh you know figure out what you know how how their needs and his needs coincide can i also say that obviously at the time and especially being a younger fan of course i was team pagong these were the kids that were having a fun time doing a conga line to a challenge but on a rewatch especially I actually think Tagi is by far the more fascinating tribe 
in terms of interpersonal dynamics, just because of all the different personalities. I think that to a certain extent, Pagong had its conflicts, but they seemed at least a little more on the whole as like a kumbaya type of tribe. But Tagi has so many interesting psychologies working against one another or with one another in the case of the Alliance that especially looking back in it and especially with a bit more maturity on my part, it really fascinates me. Yeah, you could not have picked eight more different people on Tagi. It's really interesting to watch them all bounce off each other. And of course, that that gets, you know, we see it most often in Richard and Rudy, but it's not just Richard and Rudy, it's Richard and everybody, Rudy and everybody. Like, how did Dirk and Rudy have a conversation? It's so weird to picture how these people would try to interact. That's why I would always love more footage of on, uh, on Borneo, just the people just sitting around and talking. I want to know what they talked about. Mm-hmm. Because there was okay. probably a lot of that and, that, and that's how that goes. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Mike, in the sense that, you know, when you, when you, when you want to think about personalities and how the personalities are clashing, I think Toggy is more interesting. However, you know, Pagong is the flashier sort of tribe when you're looking because they've got all of the uh, frenetic energy going on. And I think the Pagong is just such a delight when you go back and rewatch it, just because... I, I lack of a better word. I think innocence is just the right word. Like they're just out there living the adventure of their lifetime. And, you know, Jeff says those words. And I, and I think that there are TV words that we say, you know, when, when, a, when, a, when an announcer says that this is the most important thing, or this is the most crucial thing, like the, they're talking about a game show, like, you know, settle down a little bit. This is not life and death and whatnot. So when Jeff Probst is at the beginning saying, these guys are in for the adventure of a lifetime, you're just kind of like, well, what else is a TV host going to say about the show that they're promoting and whatnot? But literally the Pagong members are living the adventure of a lifetime in that moment. And it's just so thrilling to watch. And I have to point out once again, I know we brought this up on Marquesas, that Gabriel Cade was supposed to be a member of Pagong. You guys know that, right? He was originally cast for the show. They were waffling if they wanted to use him. They decided at the last minute, no, he's not relatable enough to people. So they probably, I think, believe put Greg there instead. But like Gabriel could not have been a more appropriate Pagong member. He (laughs) he, he would have been perfect. He is Pagong. I know. Also, for those of you playing Mario Lanza Bingo at home, we are an hour and a half in, and Mario has mentioned Nick Brown and Gabriel Cade. Like, you're doing well And his fanfic stories. Yeah. Oh, we are (laughs) doing real well right now. That's right. Dan Foley also. Get him in there. Dan Foley, at one point, watched Borneo. I just wanted to mention that. So they get instructions, and they get this map. They have to walk 375 paces to the waterhole. That is a ridiculous instruction. I don't know how you could count out 375 steps to just just What's say walk this, yeah walk this way and look for the blue wash tub that is going to serve or wash tub that's going to serve as your well. Yeah, it is. I do appreciate that they really tried to go with the survivalish slash island slash you know survival survivor situations theme in this season. They really do stick with it. Like in episode four with the plane crash. Oh, one of your people is in a plane crash. They're in, this, they're in the jungle. You must go rescue them. Like they really stuck with that theme much further longer than they had to. I think. Well, it's hard to calculate all those paces when you have someone like Ramona who takes up so much space on the trail. Like they take up so many paces too. She's, uh, yeah. she's a few paces tall and a few and a couple paces wide. It's really frustrating. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of paces, let's talk about the first alliance in Survivor history here, the Well Alliance. As Ooh, always, that worked out well. We're not going to tell them. They can't vote us out. Oh, it got as washed out as the trail, unfortunately. Yes. 
the two biggest characters in the season. When you think Survivor Borneo, you think BB and Ramona. Biggest in terms of uh, character about air, biggest in terms of airtime and pace size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So for people who may not watched in a while, BB and Ramona go 375 paces into the jungle. They find the water well and they quickly surmise or BB does that nobody else knows where the water is. If we don't tell them, then they can't vote us out. So that, very I would have loved move. that scene of them coming back and being like, great, where's the water? We're not going to tell you. Like, they burn the map, but it's like, you can't vote us out or you won't get water. Just to see how Pagong would react to that. I mean, I feel like Greg would have just wandered off into the jungle and found it on his own anyway. But just to have actually someone actually try to pull that off, I don't think even, like, Russell Hans or Scott Pollard could do that sort of sabotage. <laughs> Man, how many paces is Scott Pollard? That guy's tall. Yeah, he's a lot of pace. <laughs> So, yeah, so BB, of all people, the most cunning of the early players, we only we have the knowledge they can't vote us out, and Ramona laughs. But it's basically the first alliance, two people saying, we have common knowledge, they need our support, so we're safe. So shout out to BB and Ramona. Although I always forget there's the, in the scene here where we find out that BB's 64, and he has a 45-year-old wife, so they nickname him Viagra because he's a stud. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the treatment of BB in the first couple days on Pagong is super interesting. Like, apparently, uh, in the first episode, BB just really gets on the wrong foot. Like, BB apparently attempts a coup on the tribe, basically saying, like, you gotta be under my leadership, my way or the highway. And people start to mock him behind his back, or in the case of Viagra, in front of his face. And so that night, he sleeps alone on the raft, away from everybody else. Luckily, by day two, people were loving him, Bailey, because he was building the shelter. But you get, I think, a little glimpse into, like, essentially the fact that BB is working with a bunch of disrespectful children, with the exception of Gretchen. Okay, well, we'll kind of fast forward this part, because I want to get to the first challenge. But So, yeah, we go to Tagi, and Kelly leads them all in yoga on the beach the first day, except for Rudy, who sits in the water and practices his catchphrase. Now, who does the best Rudy impression? Is it you, Paul? I don't know. You you seem pretty like easy to jump onto that one. I'm I'm working really on my third a couple impression. times about the dumb boxes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Rudy says these damn kids. I don't even know what MTV means. <laughs> as as you said, that was apparently he'd been practicing that on the boat. So that's his <laughs> it really really you know really uh, rolled off the tongue because he'd done it a couple times. <laughs> yes. But, but he so... has a super pertinent quote of like the. You know, I got to fit in, not them. There's more of them than there is of me. And I think that it it's one of those things that Rudy is a surprisingly good fountain of just survivor basic knowledge. You know, he's the one that we always go back to with his uh, quote from the All-Stars DVD commentary of when it comes to voting somebody out first, you just hear a name and go with it. And here he gives some great perspective of okay, I realize that I am not necessarily with my peers or the people that I would necessarily want to hang around with every day, but if I want to make it further in this game, I'm going to have to fit myself into them, not vice versa. And, you know, as we get into episode three, maybe he's not doing a fantastic job at that, but that's an attitude that he's going to adopt very quickly, as he should, considering that, you know, after Sonya goes, he's very much on the chopping block, so he knows what he has to do to stay. What Survivor likes to do in a lot of episodes, and especially in early seasons, is they like to show you kind of uh, opposites or show you, you know, almost like a goofus and gallant kind of thing with with tribes. 
And it's not necessarily this tribe's the good tribe and this tribe's the bad tribe, but it's basically just uh, this character is doing this and it's not working, and this character is doing this and it is working. And you're right, Rudy, even after this quote, it's going to take him a while to to ingratiate himself with the tribe and kind of make an, an effort. But to me, it's very clearly the, the underlying sort of thing in this tribe is that you have Rudy, the old man on Tagi, and you have Bibi, the old man on Pagong. And Bibi is trying to hijack the tribe and say, you are going to look at things my way. You're going to work at my pace. You're going to do my things. And you can see that clearly Bibi is rubbing everyone the wrong way. And Bibi is unapologetic about it. Whereas Rudy is rubbing everyone the wrong way. And Rudy says, there are more of them than me. I've got to fit in with them. That is good. Good for you, Rudy. You have the you have the right attitude. Yep. And then we cut immediately to another iconic quote from the first episode where Sue says to Sean, you got a pierced nipple, eh? Does, does he only have one pierced nipple or does he have both pierced? He just has one. And I know in Burnett's book, he talks about that, that Sean is like Mr. Straight Laced, Long Island doctor, studious, serious, but he likes to have some edge to him. So he pierces his nipple. So he has some edge. But the one thing is always intriguing to me. Obviously, that was also the time when there was talk about the gay ear versus the straight ear when it comes to piercings. Do you think the same thing applied to nipples as well? Is that maybe Rudy thought he was the gay guy? Is that the gay nipple? The left one is the gay nipple? It's just like, it, to me, this is like so typical of what like early 2000s like risque TV was. It's like, ooh, we're going to push the boundaries here and talk about Sean's nipple piercing. Well, and, and Sue is also proving herself to be like pretty hardcore when she's like, yeah, I got these uh, two golf ball sized knots in my hair. I'm going to use a knife to get it out. Like, Sue, you don't need to get to that point. It's day two. Yeah. Sue is the real deal. She's hardcore. And let's see, we're just going to fast forward through this. So we have Sonia playing on her ukulele to Richard, a cute little, it's like her one moment, the one everyone remembers her singing Bye Bye Blues to Richard. And Richard, of course, is a gentleman. He sits there and applauds and listens to her, even though no one else is. And let's see, we'll go over to Pagong. And the big thing on the first day or two is BB just being a tyrant and building the shelter and being a pain in the ass. Now, Mike said people loved him because he did all the work. I don't know if love is really the correct word, but well, I think, BB's I think doing all the happy work. That's, yeah, that someone did the work instead of them. Uh, and he's like a workhorse. Uh, he complains how Colleen is not straightening out the net. At least he gets that name better than Craig or Girl in the Pink Bathing Suit, as Paul alluded to. But we even get a beginning of the storyline where Gretchen is like the one legitimately concerned for BB, getting very worried that he's going to get burned out. And there's this conversation where BB is like, you don't know me. And Gretchen says, well, I don't know you, but I do know human beings. But for what it's worth, they're able to do something that very, very few people have done in Survivor history over 20 years, light a fire without any flint, just using BB's classes. Yeah. Yeah, so the big takeaways here are Joel and BB fighting for male leadership of the tribe, Gretchen and BB kind of fighting for leadership of the tribe, BB having glasses, Gretchen taking BB's glasses, starting the fire because Gretchen is a huge badass and knows how to do everything. So yeah, Gretchen starts the fire. We're going to go over to Tagi. They have no luck with the fire. So really the only big star so far in two, two days has been Gretchen. She started this fire and everyone else is still fumbling along. And with that, I believe we're up to the first challenge. And this is the part of Borneo that I know a lot of people mock when they watch it now. They're like, what does Jeff Probst have to explain what tree mail is six different times? And well, because we'd never seen it before. He's it's again, put yourself in the mind of the producers. They're trying to explain this to people in a show that will be gathering viewers as weeks goes along using new terminology. So yeah, this is the first instinct of Jeff Probst explaining this is what tree mail is and this is why we're here and they'll be competing in challenges now. 
it's also an element of the game that they thought would be important that turns out that it isn't necessarily important. And we like it, and it's a relic of early seasons of Survivor that I know that we appreciate. You know, tree mail, them going to get tree mail, and tree mail usually having some sort of fun rhyming scheme with the clue or some sort of fun thing in there. And, you know, I think that they thought that the, 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 the tree males themselves would sort of be a star of the show. And for a while they were, but after a while, the audience is like, okay, they get tree mail. The tree mail tells them there's a challenge. Let's get to the challenge. So it's kind of, uh, to me, it's one of those ideas that they're trying. It's a beta test. It's basically like, Hey, look, we put some effort into giving a notification to the tribe that they're going to have a challenge. Let's highlight that. And so they have Jeff Probst explaining the tree mail, having that clip, but also just the, this is the tree mail segment. Let's look at the tree mail segment and have fun with it. To be fair, there are only so many poems you can write about the same challenge where you hold a ball above your head until you're the last person standing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so with that, we're going to the first challenge, and there's no reward challenge in the first episode of Survivor, just an immunity challenge, which I believe is a combined reward and immunity but this is the quest for fire and it's funny for the first challenge in survivor history i don't really have a lot to say about this for two reasons very straightforward yeah it's it's very straightforward there's no narration it's shot at dusk it's very sloppy Mm -hmm. it's not done very well like and i i don't like jeff probe's narration and challenges but there's some that it would help like in the first season they just put Toggy ahead or Toggy behind or pagong ahead yeah Toggy leading morgan behind most memorably yeah and so there's like there's not much I have to say about this other than Jeff says at the beginning, please make it obvious. I don't want to make a judgment call, which is hilarious in, for, when you think of future Survivor. And then when Pagong wins, basically Sonya falls down, breaks in half, scatters to the sea, and Pagong wins because Sonya fell. Jervis immediately wins immunity for the Pagongs and then turns and taunts the Toggy, saying this yep. is our island. So Jervis already in day one was doing his blood versus water shtick. Yeah, this is a peak Jervis. I'm glad that that tenant did not disappear between his Survivor appearances. Also, obviously, this is the first instance of the immunity idol. And Jeff, you know, lets everyone get a touch of it, get a good feel of it. And you can feel all these sarcastic oohs and ahs coming from everybody, especially on Pagong. And this is the <laughs> only the tip of the iceberg that is just the Pagong's defiance of Jeff Probst, the host of Survivor. Yeah, there's a lot of corniness this first season, and people are not used to that if you're used to a more modern survivor. The players were not always on board with the terminology, and Jeff Probst just doing shtick. Like, they, they're openly mocking him. They don't really respect him, and you'll see it more later, but much more behind the scenes. I'm sure Mike will fill us in on that in episode two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. But, yeah, it looks like the Pagongs have BB working on their shelter another day, and Toggy is going to be the first tribe ever to go to tribal council, which we will get into on its own because wow, the concept and especially aesthetic of tribal council has changed instrumentally in the past 20 years. A little bit. A little bit. It was only like 20 paces long, the setback then. It was very small. They didn't have a roof. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the camera is not facing the players, which I think is hilarious. It's like uh, at a weird angle. Yeah, and then at one point, and then one point, Jeff points to him and says, "You, you're up to vote," which is just, I mean, you know, now it's <laughs> yeah. like you in the red hat. What do you have to say about it? But this legitimately felt like Jeff did not know somebody's name and said, "You, you're, you're up." 
if I think there was a commentary with Jeff Probst, maybe on the Borneo, if you have the DVDs, maybe, or maybe there isn't. I, I, I could be lying about this, but there is. There I, is. Yeah. Jeff is talking about, you know, it, Jeff and Burnett like to talk about things with the first episode, especially the whole, you know, Richard and Sue interaction in the tree. Like, that's when we knew we had a show. It's like, OK, OK, we've heard it. Settle down. Just settle down. Put it away. But like. Jeff really mocks himself in this first uh, immunity challenge, just the, the the clothes he's wearing and just his presence, because you're right. Like, you know, Jeff Probst had done some TV before this. Didn't he like host Rock and Roll Jeopardy or, you know, mm -hmm. some sort of thing? But I mean, Jeff Probst is not a household name at this point. He's just a guy. He's a guy they've brought in for this, you know, experimental sort of TV game show. Right. And so he's trying to find his footing just as everyone else is right and he's trying to you know he's he's trying to not necessarily hijack the show like maybe our people would argue he does now but he's not an institution the show is not an institution none of this is an institution they're trying to make this up so he's trying to be a presence at the challenge but he's not narrating it please don't let me make a judgment call he's out there in baggy shorts and a baggy shirt and he's just kind of hanging out and so tribal council is another thing where this is a time where jeff Probst can assert himself as the host of the show and he's trying but he i think that he wasn't totally confident in himself and the product and everything yet as well so it's really fun to watch that evolution now of course there's always a peak to this because there's there's times where jeff probst is you know seasons later has established himself no one's questioning jeff probst he's the guy they're going to him he's the all the all be all end all but now we've got jeff probst the executive producer and running the show more or less and that's got its own sort of issues but it's kind of fun to watch this baby probst sort of try to figure out this 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 game as well and, and how young and how how young does he look? I mean, I know that, you know, he's plastic surgery himself and all that sort of stuff, but how young does he look? No, he really does. And he talks about so much in all the um, the special features with the DVD and stuff. He talks about about how he was the last person to, to come on and everyone else had been established and he was this newcomer and he had a lot of insecurities about, you know, people taking him seriously and doing what he was doing. So I think you definitely see that in this show. And like you said, it doesn't take too long for him to get over that and um, be a whole different Jeff Probst. But yeah, it's a fun uh, early prototype of Jeff Probst for sure. Okay, there's two important things that happen here on the lead up to the first tribal council. Now, the first one, there's a really nice scene right at the start where Dirk goes and prays. And I always kind of forget this is a really haunting shot of him praying by himself. They play this really cool music. Yeah, they're like ghostly voices behind him as he reads his Bible. Yeah, it's so cinematic. And that's the kind of stuff I really miss from the early seasons when they're trying to make this almost like a movie. But now we get the scene where Richard and Rudy kind of bond. And... Uh, where Rudy says, you know, I, I changed my opinion on certain people already. You know, like Rich, the guy's strong. He's a good leader. You know, he's fat, but he's good, which was probably the most iconic Rudy quote up other than the homosexual, not in a homosexual way. Those are the big two Rudy quotes. And then Richard said, I really like Rudy for his straightforwardness. You know, he's, he, he's honest. He does what he says he's going to do. But Rudy's in trouble tonight. And we'll talk much more about Rudy and Richard later down the road. But it's very it, to me, it's the really the big takeaway from the first season is Richard and Rudy, who by all rights should not have anything in common and shouldn't get along at all. have become the best of friends. It's really kind of heartwarming. But right here at the start, Richard says Rudy's in trouble and I'm not sure he's going to be able to save himself tonight. I like um, Richard saying, you know, oh, people think that Rudy's arrogant. If they think he's arrogant, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm out of here. 
And to that point, maybe one of the reasons why Richard feels like he can't necessarily save Rudy is that he himself feels like he's on the chopping block because of what happened on the first day. He says he's narrowed it down to four people, and he's one of them. Yeah, okay, let's go through this. Just because I think this is really fascinating, there's almost no strategy talk in this episode at all. And it's really interesting to watch it now because they just have basically everyone's talking heads, the little confessional shot where Richard says, it could be me tonight. And Sonia says, it might be me tonight. We see a replay of her falling. And Rudy's like, you know, I'm just starting to think about the game now, who I want to vote off. Then we go to Stacy, and we see Stacy and Kelly. You know, we've bonded, and we'd like to vote out Rudy tonight. We want to bring in Sue. But, like, that's the extent of the the strategy talk. It's really all left in the dark how it goes down, what's going to happen. We just hear what might happen, and then it's capped off by Jeff Probst once again, just reiterating what they just said. He says, maybe it will be Richard tonight mm-hmm. because he's a huge tool. Maybe it'll be Sonia tonight because she sucks. Maybe it'll be Rudy because he's a grizzled old man. Like, it's really fascinating how interactive the show was. It's right from the start where after the episode, you see who's voted out. You never saw why. And so immediately you'd go on the message board or talk about with your friends and you'd try to theorize why they were voted out. It became very interactive for that reason. Let's see what else here. We got Sue with a quote saying Stacy's more annoying than Rudy. She thinks I'm voting for one way. Yeah, she thinks I'm voting for one person and I'm not. No, I think it goes great. the ch- I think it goes the chicks think I'm voting for one person and I'm not. Yeah. Because she said about how Stacy wants to vote for Rudy because uh, he's too he's too he's too bossy. But well, anyone's too bossy too barky for Stacy because she doesn't move her ass. Yeah. Sue is really the only villain in the first episode who does anything slightly villainous, and it's just, she's kind of shady here at the end. Although I do want to bring up one thing, and just because of the timeline, and it's. A lot of Borneo is shown out of order or out of sequence for editing reasons. And it's really, that's the thing. When fans think they know what happened in a show, you really don't because things are shown out of order, especially this first season. The first season is shady's not quite the right word. It's not quite accurate. But Rudy and Richard, Rudy already knows that Richard is gay here, I believe, in real life. And Mike, you just read the book. You may want to specify that because there's a very important scene right before Tribal Council here. Yeah, so basically what happens is, so I believe on night two, uh, because Burnett goes into a little bit of detail, I believe it may be in the, ep- the, ch- the episode three chapter about Richard and Kelly's connection, because Richard, because Kelly was the first person that Richard came out to. The two of them were just sitting on the raft on, I think, night one or two, just sort of talking about things, and she was the first person that he said that he was gay to. The next morning, he then came out to the rest of the tribe, sans Rudy, who wasn't around. So at this point, everyone except Rudy knew that Richard was gay. Apparently at this first tribal council is when Rudy found out, and he then subsequently and surprisingly just says in response, I like him.
So why do you think that scene wasn't shown? Is is it that, you know, this is still mid-2000 when, you know, the homosexuality was still like a new topic? Was like the footage just not good to use? Because you would think, to your point, Mario, this is not only a seminal scene for the season, but like a fantastic societal moment as well to watch the Tagi sort of rally behind this big personal moment for Richard. I'm just very surprised that it wasn't shown unless there are other uh, external sort of circumstances behind it. I mean, I don't know any more than anybody else does. Anything I say is just conjecture. I could think of three reasons. One, like you said, you didn't have gay characters on TV in 2000, not for the most part. Yeah, I know Ellen had be before that, but Ellen, it, would, it was very controversial when she came out and she wasn't yeah. always beloved because of it. So yeah. I'm sure the network was very concerned that their potential winner was going to be outed as gay in the first episode. They may not have been comfortable with that. The second reason I can think of maybe is that it's a spoiler that Richard is going to become integral to the storyline and they maybe didn't want to give him too much focus early on. They wanted to save that Rudy versus Richard, the gay dichotomy for maybe later in the season. They wanted to play their cards later. And the third one that I could think of just off the top of my head is that the main sponsor of the first season was the U.S. Army. And I don't know if the Army really wanted the gay subplot out there that much. I'm just that's just all off the top of my head. So I suspect it was one of those or a combination of those three things why it's not included. I'll throw out a fourth one that I think happens a lot in this season is that I do not think production wise everything was I don't know that they captured everything perfectly the way they the way they wanted to. We'll notice that there's an a challenge that they just cut out of the show and there's mm -hmm. there's moments that get missed and they reuse like there's like a like a certain scene of like um, when the alliance is formed, they I, they show the scene of uh, like Kelly, Sue, and Rich coming together, and they 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 show it so many times in so many different parts. So I just think there's also possibility that they didn't capture the moment the way they wanted to, just from mm -hmm. a a logistics perspective, because I feel like there's a lot of that that happened on that first season. What about you guys? What do you Jay or Mike? What do you think? Do we cover all the reasons or anything else you could think of why it's not shown? <laughs> I mean, I, I personally think it is with Paul. I could imagine if for some reason, like, they didn't capture this. But even then, like I said before, so much of the day is recapped by talking heads. I you I think you could very easily create a scene where you have Kelly being like, well, last night Richard told me that he was gay, and this is these are my feelings about it. So I, I could see maybe if that's the reason behind it. But that being said, I don't think it necessarily justifies removing that whole plot line entirely. Because like Mario said, it's so important. I I think that it's partially maybe capturing the moment, but I, I think that I mean it 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 has to be said in in the year two thousand it was you know the uh, gay characters on TV was just not as much of a thing that happened and just the the subject of 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 that was 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 just a uh, it was a really sort of it, for lack of a better word it was still kind of a taboo subject. Uh, in America, even though we do have some, you know, cracks in the system, like with Ellen and and other things going on. But I I just don't think that CBS I think CBS wanted the show to be a hit and wanted everyone to kind of like it. And when you start pushing LGBTQ issues into the show aggressively from the first episode, you're probably going to turn off quite a few people. And I don't think they wanted to do that quite yet. Yeah, that's my suspicion as well. But again, we're just we're just guessing. No one knows for sure. Which, which is like, you know, when you think about when, you know, and it's so funny because everyone's just like, oh, I want to go back to the 90s. Or I want to go back to 2000. It's like the 90s and 2000s was problematic in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. 
and and this is absolutely one of them and it, it's it's almost disgraceful to talk about it now but that was society then it's just what it was and you know we all talk about you know it's funny because you know we're going to talk about you know rudy you know accepting richard you know we got to be friends not in a homosexual way that's for sure but it's like that's all like kind of horrific when you really think about it but at the same time it's this scene of someone of of in a weird way like it's it's kind of horrific acceptance but it is acceptance and so it's kind of like i guess we'll take it but <laughs> you know ugh, you know yeah rudy never really accepted it rudy's just pragmatic this guy has yeah. skills yeah i don't know if rudy's opinion ever changed to be honest right exactly well, no, I, I don't so. think it's necessarily about like oh, this is going to make me accepting of homosexuality. I think it's more so like I'll be accepting of Richard in spite of his homosexuality. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Now, now, just one thing is, Mike, you talked about that's in the book. That's like a big part of the chapter. Burnett writes about that. It's a big section, right, about Richard mm -hmm. coming out and it being a big deal. Just for people who have never read this book before, the Mark Burnett book, I, I always call it the Bible of Survivor because it's so – it's so in-depth on what happened behind the season. It's the only season that somebody did that for. But it's hilarious because there's scenes that Mark Burnett really highlights in the book that never happened on the show. And that's one of them. And there's another one later that I remember specifically where Jervis is about to be voted out. Burnett says, Jervis stood up and gave this big speech to the Toggies. You better vote me out or I'm going to come shove it in your faces. I'm going to I'm going to be your nightmare. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stomp you. You will never be rid of me. And and Burnett's like, it's the greatest speech. And one day Jervis will show that to his children and like how proud they are of their dad. And then it's never in the episode. We never saw it. Yeah, the Burnett's book is super interesting because you do realize from a certain perspective that it is told from his point of view, like – there's a point where he talks about Dirk and he is very, very judgy of the other Toggies being like, they judge Dirk because of his faith and how wrong of them to pick on somebody for having, you know, a religion and for believing in something. So sometimes you need to remove your mind and remember the person that's writing the book. But I feel like to your point that you made earlier, Mario, if you're looking for some depictions as to what was going on behind the scenes from both like an on-island perspective and a production perspective, there's no other book you could find. Yeah. Borneo is without question the best documented, most documented of all the Survivor seasons. And it's funny, I see modern fans talk about it on message boards like, I've heard rumors. I heard a rumor that, you know, there was a, some shadiness behind the Stacey vote. I'm like, that wasn't a rumor. There's a whole yeah, lawsuit, a lawsuit about that you can read. <laughs> yeah, you can read the deposition. So like, Yeah, you can absolutely is, read that. Yeah, season one is very well documented. There aren't a lot of secrets about it. <laughs> all right. So let's go to the first tribal council here, which I don't have a much to say about it because it's so amateurish. It doesn't really feel like they knew what they were doing. It's like yeah, it's a, it's a really like it's a much more open conversation. We're like now we're used to Jeff going down the line, pointing at people and asking them questions, and they'll adapt it a little more once the conch shell comes in in episode three. But this first episode is like people are talking over one another. Like it really does seem like more of a mingling where they're sitting on these poor stumps and, as Mario says, has the camera pointed at them in profile as they sort of just pontificate on what's going on and why they're here. I also like how they had to walk to Tribal Council, so on the way they're like, yeah, we saw mudslides, we ran into a couple snakes here. <laughs> Do you and think... Tribal Council was 8,000 paces from yeah, camp. exactly. Start counting. Do you, th Do you think, this is just a, a question, and it may be answered in Burnett's book, which admittedly I've never read, so, you know, hooray, me. But um, it, it's going to come up, not, not on this episode of Survivor Historians, but, you know, when, when there's a tie vote later on, you know, they, they famously 
Probst and, and Burnett talked about how like they didn't necessarily have a contingency for a tie vote. You know, they just kind of went, well, they're just going to keep voting until there's not a tie. And they couldn't think of some sort of like way to break the tie. And I think that, you know, tribal council has evolved into this thing where they sit down. Jeff asks them questions. They were initially very candid and some people are just dumbly very candid. But now people answer tribal council questions very coyly you know, not not necessarily divulging all the strategies that they have. And it gets to be this kind of game within itself. And then now it's evolved into just this sort of hodgepodge. But the fact that it was so free and willy nilly, do you think that their initial thoughts on tribal council was that it was just going to be a forum for the tribe to kind of hash out like, so 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 is it settled? Are we going to vote for this person? And then they go up and do the votes because they weren't thinking about ties. They were thinking that it was all going to be very definitive. Well, I wonder if – it wasn't really talked about in the book. I wonder if tribal councils initially thought – I mean, first off, it is very ceremonial. You know, Jeff gives this whole speech about, like, you each have a torch which represents your individuality. Uh, and so, you know, they, they really tried to make this as, quote-unquote, cultural as possible, which is ironic given the fact that future tribal council sets are going to invoke much more cultural aspects than the actual first season of Survivor. But it seems like, I think, more so an opportunity for the tribe to sort of speak as a group and be able to – vocalize their thoughts to Jeff Probst and to each other. And Jeff, Jeff is sort of the mediator there. So it's more so like what Richard wanted Toggy to do on day one, which is like everyone talk through things. I don't know if it's come to a consensus opinion necessarily. I also push back on you saying that like later on in Survivor, people will try to dodge, you know, out of questions. Because I'm pretty sure we're going to get to a point later on this season where, you know, Jeff is asking about alliances and they are being vehemently denied by people in this cast. Well, yeah, because tribal council evolves into Jeff asking questions, you know, like I think that, you know, he's doing it somewhat here, but mm -hmm. I think tribal council gets very, I think tribal council gets developed in a lot of ways with Jeff and his hosting very quickly on the fly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's just facilitating here. That's all he's doing. Yeah, I, I you know, it, it struggles these first couple of episodes, but I think that, you know, because Jeff is, ap uh, you know, obviously production is talking about you know, the footage and how the game is going as the game is going, right? And I think that they realize, you know, that they knew that tribal council would be a thing because that's where the vote happens and someone gets voted out. But I think, just as you said, I think they were they were they were commenting and and concentrating the ceremony of it and the ceremony of the voting, but I don't think they realized just how crucial it is to the gameplay and sort of uh the way the show works and, and the segment itself. So I think that they realized that they really needed to work on tribal council. And this is a way for Jeff Probst to be the hosty host in the section. So I think they really clamped that down quick. Cause I think they, they realize how important this segment is to the show. To the yeah. point where Burnett in his book refers to Probst as chief Jeff, which who knew we'd actually see a chief Jeff in terms of uh, the behind the scenes stuff come to fruition later, but like Burnett's attitude and I'm assuming Probst's attitude as well was you know, this is the guy that should be the leader of this de facto tribe of people and that he is the one who holds up the votes and ends up formally sending a person out. And I think to your point, Jay, even past this first episode, they sort of not once they went back to the drawing board, but sort of took notes in the moment of like, OK, maybe this is not the way tribal council should work. And then moving forward, hey, let's try some things out to sort of get the conversation moving to the point where when you even when you get to episode four, Jeff's throwing out these open ended questions like who feels safe tonight, who doesn't feel safe tonight, which are more what we're used to in the modern survivor parlance. Yeah. And one more thing I wanted to point out is that Burnett actually does answer your question, Jay, in his book. I'm remembering this now that the second episode, the first Pagong Tribal Council, 
in real life was so chaotic and so I'll out of control. That, yeah. And Burnett specifically says after that tribal council, Jeff was furious because he had no control over the Pagans. They were voting for him. They were just talking over him. They were not paying attention. So Burnett and Jeff met after that second tribal council and said, we're going to make some changes from here on out. You call the shots. You're the one steering the ship. So it's the Pagans in episode two that really forced him to change a little bit. And again, I don't have much to say about this tribal council. It's very quick, very short. And Sonia gets voted out. Not before Suna. she votes. Suna. Yeah, Suna. The very <laughs> first vote in tribal council is Sue. And she holds up Suna. I found myself just sitting on the couch, just laughing my ass off at Suna after all these years. <laughs> like, how phonetically do you even do you even think that Sonia is spelled S-O-U-N-A? <laughs> I'm going to defend, I'm going to defend Sue here. And she clearly is not the greatest speller in the world. She thinks that's a Y. So she's, she's already figured out it's S-O-N-Y-A, but she somehow gets the sound of Y and U mixed up. And she puts the U in front of the N instead of after it. So you know what? She was ahead of her, she was ahead of her time. Speaking of preschool teachers and I used to teach kindergarten, you know what we call this? Inventive spelling. If you don't know how to spell it, you just be creative. You write down what you hear, and that's okay. She was ahead of her time on this. Yeah. If it had been S-O-N-U-A, it would make more sense. Sonia. Okay, I can kind of see that. She just inverted two of the letters. Yeah, and got one of them wrong. Uh, but, yeah, so Richard, in true Richard fashion, he holds up his vote for Stacey and goes, subtle reasons. I'm not sure exactly what they are, which is interesting. But before reading the votes— Jeff, and I totally forgot about this, Jeff stops down and becomes Mr. Motivator and says, there were a lot of steps along the way. Any of you could have turned around. None of you did. In my book, that gives you bragging rights for life. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just something strange that, like, I never, I, I didn't, maybe, again, this is Probe sort of still realizing his role uh, in the tribe, but I forgot that he gave those words of to, of wisdom to them, not before, not after the vote, but before the vote. Yeah, watch that back-to-back -back with a modern season, like season 38, 39, 40, when Jeff is openly saying, you got to humiliate people, blindside him, this is amazing. Like, it's it's very jarring to watch them back and forth. Also, the torches are extremely short compared to nowadays. <laughs> yeah, they're like, what, 12 paces tall? Yeah, they, I think they come up to, like, Sonya's sternum, maybe. So it's like, a, now it's, 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 it's interesting to have someone, like, look down on their torch instead of, I guess, looking <laughs> at eye level or above. Well, it makes sense when you realize Leaf was originally cast in the first season. Those were his torches. Oh, is that where they had so many? Were those the three crates that was going to be Leaf's sleeping quarters? <laughs> yes. No, I am just kidding. Leaf was not originally cast in the first season. But yeah, so Sonia is voted out four to three to one. Rudy gets three votes and Stacy gets the one vote from Richard. And <laughs> Sonia says, go get him, you guys. And then marches out where she is immediately put to death. And we get the evil Sue, <laughs> the evil Sue smile, the he, which is a great image at the end of the episode. And Paul was pissed about Survivor. Paul loves his old women. He loves it when they fall. And even ten-year-old Paul, I was not sold yet. Uh, at this point, I did not think that was fair. Just because she was old, just because she fell, I didn't think that was fair. So I'm not convinced yet. I'm not sold. Uh, so I mean, Sonia is in Survivor history. She's the first person to ever be voted out she is just as pleasant as ever i think uh josh wiggler got in contact with her recently but i mean i guess looking at things and Burnett talks about this a bit in his book if not richard going you'd have to imagine that people like sonia and bb are just like lambs to the slaughter right considering the makeup of these tribes and the that the asks for them to create a society the elders must go first yeah sonia was not going to get far let's just put it that way so 
Um, a couple things. Let's talk about the alliance thing because we have to dispel this myth here. That the common myth, if you listen to the episodes, is in episode four, Richard invented alliances and they all followed him because he's the only smart player, which is not true, obviously. Let's talk about this alliance that was formed already and has fallen apart by this point in the game. Yes, yeah, Stacy Stillman is the game changer. Yeah, Stacy, and it's in the book, right? Burnett talks about that. I'm not just making this up, right? Yeah, I mean, we even see it early in this episode. Stacy went up to Susan and said, hey, you know what? We should all vote together. And I think that counts as an alliance. Yeah, Stacy was very hardcore on the girls had to stick together because she, no dummy, realized that the when the guys would probably team up and vote off the girls because the girls were weak and that they would get rid of the weak first. So if we girls team up together, they can't just do that. And so Stacy had tried to put together an alliance of her, Sue, Kelly, and Sonia, just as more self-preservation than anything. I mean, Stacy's small. Obviously, she's going to need the protection. And it will, probably would have held together, except for two small factors. One, Sue Hawk is uncontrollable and hated Stacy's guts. That's one problem. And Sonia was such a liability in the first challenge, it kind of fell apart. So you will see Sue turn on Stacy here once and vote for Sonia. And then Sue is going to turn on Stacy again and vote for Stacy in the third episode. And when Stacy's voted out, that's the first person she turns to. She turns to Sue, says, You changed your vote. Mm-hmm. And that's because Stacy's alliance fell apart because mostly of Sue. Just remember that. If Stacy was the first alliance, it was not a difficult concept to pick up. And Richard sure as hell did not invent it in episode four. Right, but history is also written by the winners. And I think that's this Correct. idea. I, I, If you're given two ideas of what you want to move forward with as a show in terms of a narrative to put forward, here's this thing that was suggested and quickly fell apart, or here's this thing that completely revolutionized the game and decimated literally everyone that was left. You go with the latter. Correct. And although, once again, I would argue, Richard doesn't become powerful because of the alliance, because Sue would have turned on him in a heartbeat. He only becomes powerful because he gets a fishing spear, starts catching fish, and Sue realizes this guy's got some value. He keeps us fed, and now she's with him. So the alliance had less to do with him provided less to do with it than him actually obtaining value and making himself skilled. Yeah, and I, it's tough because you know, especially with the first few seasons of Survivor, when alliances and I mean alliances are still a thing today, obviously, but you know alliances in lieu of a lot of the uh, the um, immunity idols and a lot of the twists and stuff like that alliances is how it goes and especially when you watch survivor australian outback like the whole show is predicated on these alliances that are made uh, very early on in the tribes so you know it's it's an important concept and i think that you know a you you don't want to have the first alliance be something that didn't work ever like it was something that stacy proposed but uh, as you said sue never voted with her ever so how much of an alliance could it have been, right, if if they never voted together once? And then the second thing is that, you know, as we talked about, Stacey Silman in the lawsuit, like, do they really want to put her in the annals of this television show? Very true. I would compare it to, like, we think about the idea of flushing a hidden immunity idol in Modern Survivor, but we don't necessarily remember that cowboy from Survivor Cook Islands was the first person to come up with it. It's just one of those things that unfortunately got lost to history and the idea of pushing forward other people as better representatives of this idea because it was successful. Well, yeah, and it goes even further than that. Like, I, you're correct. You don't want Stacy to get the credit for it because she's irrelevant and they don't like her to begin with. 
But you could go even further than that, that Stacy and Sue and Kelly were in this alliance and Stacy, you know, for various reasons was pushed out. But Sue and Kelly probably already still have some semblance of alliance and they basically get Richard involved with what they already have. So it's not, again, just not just a one person thing. It's a combination of people and factors all working together. It's no it's never been as simple as just one person dictates everything. All right. Do we have any eulogies for Sonia, the, the, the late Suna? <laughs> I think for the show's history, like she's a very good ambassador in terms of the first person voted off, like great attitude about it. Can kind of laugh at herself. Like if you're going to, you, you didn't want someone to be the first person out and go home and be bitter about it for the end of time. So I uh, can you imagine, can you imagine, okay, granted these are other circumstances involved too, but can you imagine if Dev Eaton was like the first person voted off in the history of the show, like how depressing that would be. Like she's a good ambassador. Even switch it with BB. Like I yeah. feel like having the first person voted out of Survivor be a quit is like, not a great representation for the show well it's okay this gets into a bigger issue too because one thing i love about the early seasons and this is really something that gets lost as forever goes along is that the vote outs are sad and i really think it's so much more valuable when you feel bad when people are voted out so sonya's perfect yeah jeff is actually very like low spoken and you know, depressing sounding when he does his first The Tribe is Spoken. He almost feels a mm-hmm. bit heartfelt towards Sonya in that moment. Understandably so. I mean, Jeff was doing all the studying up on these people beforehand. Like, you feel personally associated with this person. And I think that Tribal Council at that time was more so meant to be like, you have to eliminate one of your own. And so this is not supposed to be a happy moment, which again, to your point, Mario, is something that has very much evolved, even starting as soon as like the second season when it's like, hey, let's vote out Jerry Manthe and dance on her grave. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's my one thing that I really love about Borneo in the early season in particular. And I I, I feel just from a storytelling point of view, Survivor's so much more, so much more effective when you feel bad when someone's voted out and like every episode should hurt. And it's so it becomes so addictive in that sense because you really have an emotional stake in it. That's if I could change one thing about Modern Survivor and make it back more like the original ones, I would stop celebrating when people are voted out or cheering like it was a great move or a great game move. Like it's so much more interesting when it's sad and you have stake in what just happened. All right, so that's that's our Sonia tribute. You think we can get through one more episode? It's a two part, a two episode I, podcast. Yeah, I think we can get through uh, BB's last stand here. <laughs> okay, so Sonya, I don't know. Sonya's Ramona's been... still in the episode, taking up a lot of airtime. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, oh, should I tell my? I'll tell my quick Sonia story. I forget if I told this before. The one time I met Sonia, this is kind of funny. That I went to the Thailand finale with uh, Mertz Jaffer, who was our webmaster at Survivor Central, and we're walking to the finale, and this limo pulls up, and it's Sonia and her girlfriend, and they're going to the the taping. And so they open the door and they're like, excuse me, young man, can you tell me how to get to CBS? And I'm like, oh, it's just over there. You drive over there and that's the uh, stage entrance. And Sony's like, thank you. And Mertz very much wanted to be famous. So he's like, hey, how about we get in your car with you and we can all go in the, the uh, CBS participant entrance together. And Sony's like, no. And they close <laughs> the door. So that was it. <laughs> <laughs> So Sonia crapped on Mertz. I felt bad. It was very embarrassing. But she was very definitive. No, you may not go in the car with us. <laughs> <laughs> and then she uh, fell out of the car. Yeah, exactly. She did. It was terrible. Or it the car right falls. Yeah, it was, like it, was their shoe, it was her shoes she was wearing. She should change those. <laughs> okay, let's go through BB. Okay, so right at the start of episode two, and I have pinpointed this before, as I always say, 
Do you want to know the moment that Survivor got great? Like the first episode is fun and it's iconic, but it's very clunky and there's things that don't work and it's it's kind of amateurish. It feels like it's thrown together. It's if unbelievably wanna, clunky. Yeah, it's 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 really yeah, like it's like, not. Like, and then, it's and I mean, we didn't even talk about from the editing style. Like three quarters of Pagong is entirely invisible. They're not shown in any iota whatsoever. <laughs> but Ramona gets some airtime. <laughs> yeah, R- Ramona, Gretchen, and Bibi are taking up the paces here. <laughs> All right, so the start of episode two, and I want people to go. You can go on Amazon Prime or whatever. I don't, I don't know where these are streaming, but watch episode two of Survivor. Watch the opening, the intro that they have right at the start. Uh, 16 strangers stranded on an island. They must live to or work together to form a society. And then ultimately it is every man for himself. And it's timed perfectly to this this Russ Landau music. It's so amazing, this opening at the start of episode two. And they will play that at the start of every episode from here on out. I would pinpoint that is the moment Survivor became awesome. That intro is so cool. Do you guys know the one I'm talking about? Is yep. it is it the one that means that goes like the da 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 and it ends with like the oh yes dun 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 yeah it's that's all the music and it's very dramatic and the the way they cut the shot and her probes narration is cut exactly in time to the music and at the end they even have the spoiler where he says in the end only one will remain and they show Richard walking down the path. Like there's been a spoiler the entire season. Richard's going to win and no one ever caught it. But that intro is so cool. And that's the moment I fell in love with Survivor. That was so it's like a recap of what the season is going to be, what it is and what to be ready for. And it's it's just so much more interesting than the entire first episode. And that's it. That's uh, and then we go through a bunch of stuff with everyone starving and they have no food. And that's mostly this episode. They're trying to get food. They are having no luck. And uh it's, uh, what is it, Rudy's, like, taking extra food, and the Toggies don't like it. They have to they have to give him the clearance, the censure. Yeah, well, also, Toggies like, oh, maybe we should start eating rats. And Rudy's like, I'm not nearly hungry enough to do that. And we'll cut to the other camp doing that uh, in a couple of episodes. But, yeah, I mean, they're, they're attempting to fish at this moment, but they don't get much, much luck until Super Pole comes into the picture, and then they have even worse luck. Uh, and Rudy will vocalize something that will become a main storyline of episode three, that he and Stacey wouldn't get along in real life because, quote, she's too prim. <laughs> yes. And every time he says that, there's one shot they use of Stacey. She's like uh, fixing the lace curtain on their shelter and making sure the edge is straight. They always show that shot. <laughs> Okay, so that's really, yeah, there's that. Episode two is probably my least favorite episode of Borneo. I don't think it's all that interesting, just other than the bug eating at the end. Because most of most of the episode is just basically BB against the rest of Pagong fighting over the shelter. Can we talk, though, about just, you know, what something that is probably jarring to people watching the show is just how much stuff they actually have. Yeah, well, because <laughs> yeah. They, they really put a lot of supplies on that boat. Like, I think uh, Toggy got, like, four fishing traps and like three rat traps they didn't put a lot of you know actual food on the boat but they got a lot of supplies to crack open they got a lot of supplies in the crates yeah they they have a lot of supplies they also have a lot of change of clothes as well like you know they're pulling out rain slickers and you know things like that and it's just like you know nowadays and it's sort of like the whole survivor thing where it's like well now we're gonna give you nothing and you're gonna go out there you know famously just just a pot and a machete and that's it and it's like you know, in this first season, they were like, yeah, you can have some warm clothes. You can have this thing. You know, have sunglasses. I know the sun can get very bright at times. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's been lost to history, but that was the selling point in Marquesas. The, the fourth season, they will get no food. It was like the big selling point. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. <laughs> yeah, they have a lot of stuff. Thank God for Target, the sponsor, giving them crates of supplies. All right, so, yeah, this uh, basically this is just scene after scene of BB yelling that everyone's lazy, trying to build the shelter, holding Greg by his hair. I always like that scene as Greg hammers the shelter home. Uh, don't you mean and Craig? Craig, yeah, I was going to say, this is a scene where B.B. doesn't know their names. Craig, Pink Bikini. <laughs> so, so B.B.'s having a hard time fitting in with the young Pagongs. He's too busy focusing on making chopsticks for everybody. <laughs> and to his credit, B.B.'s trying. He's trying. He just does not fit in. He has a different work ethic. He does, he's clearly the outsider, as to your point, Mike, that the ages are so different. Like, B.B.'s way older than everybody else. Gretchen, Gretchen's the closest, and she's 25 years younger than him. Yeah, and Burnett really... So, like, old enough to be his wife. I was just going to say, so she's his type? Come through, Viagra. But Burnett really psychoanalyzes B.B., gives a huge backstory about B.B. as someone who built this huge, successful career for himself because he always wanted to outdo his father. Like, he had daddy issues up the wazoo. He became this construction magnet in Kansas City, hence why he's so fixated on the shelter. He, like, bought a 747 with it and a Harley to the point where Bibi was so loaded that he was going to give the million dollars to charity if he won, just, like, outright. He wasn't going to earn a cent of it if he ended up winning. So I just feel like his attitude in general, and I think Colleen uh, vocalizes this, that, like, if something's wrong, BB is going to be very adamant and outright aggressive about fixing it. And that while that does help fix the problem, it doesn't necessarily help ingratiate yourself into other people. Yeah, let's it's it's sort of not all that well known, probably by a modern audience, that BB was one of the richest people in America, if I recall. He was like really, really rich. Yeah, to the point where I think he actually like booked like like on the flight to malaysia i believe he flew first class or something like he definitely <laughs> splurged a bit on his flight to malaysia that everyone else couldn't afford yeah he is from overland park kansas a historically pretty rich area he's in the richest section of that i read that was it in the iraqi war or something in the gulf war bb was 100 percent responsible for his his supply company was in charge of all the water being sent to all the troops over in the Middle East. Oh, Somehow wow. he got the he got the contract because he knew Rumsfeld or something. So like BB was super connected and super rich, and we will see this this in this episode as things start to go downhill for him. He's going to start wanting to quit. He's like, you know, I just want to make my life comfortable and get out of here. I don't need this money. I don't care. And this will be a major subplot. This he doesn't need this like everybody else does. Yeah, that's. I don't have many notes for Pagong. I just have BB is a tyrant. Gretchen tells him to calm down. And then Ramona's sick and she can't eat any food. And basically, this will come down to when Pagong loses, will it be BB or Ramona tonight? And it's, it's, there's not, like, to me, it's not all that interesting. Most of the interesting stuff in this episode is on Tagi. Yeah, I mean, the, the only other, you know, we can sort of yada yada through Pagong. The only other thing is <laughs> Burnett goes into, like, gorilla metaphors for Joel and BB that, to your point, Joel <laughs> really wants to be the alpha male. And he's angry that BB is going through all the orders. And, you know, we see a bit of conflict here in this episode where BB's like, yeah, when you get to be 64 years old, you can make all the orders. Uh, there's one point where I think BB just sort of snipes at him that, like, okay, if we're building a health center, I'll, I'll call you. And, you know, Jenna's pretty offended. She's like, okay, so I guess if we're giving birth... Uh, you should call me because I'm a single mother. It, it's clear that just BB 
does not want to be there. Like, he's complaining about Ramona not doing anything, only, like, 10 to 15 minutes at a time and all the air that she takes off. So even if you have people like Greg and Colleen are sort of, like, they appreciate BB, it just seems like he really does not want to be there. The only other big Pagong focus is that Colleen and Greg stuff about the possible canoodling that they're doing. Yeah, we get the uh, coupling up of Greg and Colleen, although we do get Greg hosting game night, game show night. It's like the newlywed game. Yeah, so Greg is like the comic relief around camp. The all-new, newly stranded survivor game. How did you 10-year-olds think of uh, Greg and Colleen at the time? Were you guys Greg fans as kids? I'm still a Greg fan. Greg is one of my favorites. <laughs> I, I just I just love this idea that like he's kind of a big troll to this show, and we'll get into it a bit more with Tribal Council too, but like he's someone who definitely masks any attempt that he's making to play the game in humor, and I thought that was a very brilliant yet subtle way to look at the game. So of course I was shipping him and Colleen. I don't well, think it I was ever- like Colleen. I was like Colleen until she said the word sex, and I kind of felt she was a little bit like dirty, like a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> I didn't like hearing that word. In Montana, saying sex is like third base, right? <laughs> <laughs> Paul, I'm sorry. Are you are you Dirk? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, Montana, we're one big Dirk. So, so Colleen was good until she was dirty. So she said the S-E-X word. Okay. Although I will say Greg has a great quote here where he talks about BB and Joel fighting, says there's, there's a bit of friction between those two, a bit of chafing, if you'd like to put it in island terms. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> I didn't realize chafing was only used on the island. Well, I'm just I'm sure that's a common problem. Everyone's getting athletes foot and chafing from wet clothes rubbing against their skin. So that's probably something they talked about a lot. And so Greg just worked it into his criticism of BB and Joel that they're chafing each other. I know that we've talked about like I know we've talked about like, you know, Heidi having like, you know, the high survivor IQ. And, you know, we've had, you know, smart people on the show. You know, Yule comes to mind and, and, and some some players that are very smart. But like. Greg Buis might be like the most brilliant person. Uh, he's just ridiculous with with everything that's going on. But like, you know, he uses it in such a trolly fashion that it 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 obviously does nothing for like his his chances within the game. But but holy crap, that guy could think on his feet and <laughs> and 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 just dance around so many different words. It's uh, I'm surprised we did not see all of the all new newly stranded Survivor game. Uh, but I guess we got the one good moment, which was the question was if you were to describe your love making. Pos- oh, sorry, Paul earmuffs. If you were to describe your love making position as a food, which would it be and why? And Joel said good and plenty, which uh, was, I think was just a, a fun little snip. The only other thing I want to say is that BB does have a fun quote about Joel, where he said he reminds him of a guy who you can buy for what he's worth sell for what he thinks he's worth, and then get a million dollars. That is such a roundabout slam. It's an old-timey roundabout slam. Yeah, it, it requires you to do a little bit of math. If you're like, okay, I guess one is zero dollars, but which one's zero dollars? <laughs> yeah, let's... Okay, what you said, Jay, about Greg being a genius. This is something that people may not know unless they live through Borneo. It was common knowledge, common wisdom. Everyone said Greg was the best player in Borneo. That's what they all said after the game. Gretchen was saying that during the game. Richard was saying Greg was the only one he was really scared of. So it was just common wisdom that if Greg gave a shit at all about Survivor, he would have dusted everybody, but he just didn't. He was like, 
to bring up Gabriel again. He was like evil Gabriel. He wasn't, he was there for the experience, not for the game. He probably could have won the game. And in fact, there's a point later in the season where it feels like he turns it on and starts trying to play the game, but it's too late because he doesn't have numbers anymore. But it was commonly accepted. He was the best player. He just didn't care. Yeah. And I think to that point, Gretchen, like, is one of the only people to really pick up on it. She's someone who, like, is observing what Greg is trying to do, which is essentially to bring down everyone's shields by endearing himself by being like, oh, I'm just the goofy guy, when really he wields much more power in the tribe than everyone is aware of. And I do think, you know, we talk so much in Modern Survivor about the social game, and I feel like Greg was actually playing a very remarkable social game, but Burnett gets into it a lot, really psychoanalyzing him about, like, he uses humor to mask the fact that he does care about this experience, and the one time when he does, that's when he gets voted out, so... Yeah, I, I think, you know, that is true to a certain extent. Yeah, and to back that up even more, Ramona says it in this episode during the game show scene. She says, Greg is so good. Like, he's 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 a natural, he's funny, he's just amazing. She's like, so she has also noticed how good he is at ingratiating himself to people. And I have to give a little criticism of Greg, not criticism, you know, as a person, but strategically, like, Gretchen, that, that's the knowledge, common knowledge when people talk about Survivor and Pagong. They'll say, oh, you know, Pagong would have done, done okay, but Gretchen was against alliances. But it was not Gretchen at all. And you know this from reading the book, Mike, is that Greg was just anti, as anti-alliance as Gretchen was mm-hmm. for basically the same reason. Like, yeah, of course anybody could win with alliances, but that's not hard. That's not fun. Like, Greg was fully on, fully as smart as Richard as anybody. Like, alliances were not that difficult a concept to think up. Greg just thought they were they were cheap. Like, I would rather win the correct way than lose cheaply. And that was his. So he was 100% anti-alliance, too, just because it's not fun. All right. So so that's most of Pagong this episode. Now, Toggy, there's a couple interesting things going on this one where Richard and Rudy start getting close. And I believe this is the one where Rudy finds out he's gay and says the homosexual, he's one of the nicest guys I know. Although, again, in real life, they knew that before this episode. But in the in the TV presentation, this is where Rudy learns, correct? Yeah, Richard does have this weird quote where he's like, I don't know if Rudy knew about me, how he'd react. That probably was taken on, like, day two or something before Rudy found out at Tribal Council. But yes, the canon is that Rudy officially finds out the night before. So I I would see that this confessional, this the infamous, uh, you know, me and Richard got to be pretty good friends, not in a homosexual way, that's for sure. And subsequent rubbing of sunscreen on his back probably was done in this time frame. It's just that the reveal that Rudy knows was actually done the night before. Yeah. In the immortal words of Rudy, he wanted to call me over to have a talk. He was going to tell me he was queer then. So there's Rudy. As I, this is a quote, I will attribute this to Rob Sesternino, who once told me that he'd never heard the word queer in like 50 years until Rudy brought it back on TV. And then all of a sudden there was shows like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and LGBTQ started coming up with the word queer. So he's like, Rudy should get a lot of credit for bringing that word back because it had been buried for decades. Honestly, there's a, considering how big of a celebrity Rudy was after the show, I feel like there's a non-zero chance that that is true. Yeah, I, that, that's not really a joke. Like that word, like it's a hurtful word, an old timey word. But the way Rudy used it was so blunt that it wasn't he wasn't especially using it in a mean way, which is how why he could get away with it. I felt like he's just stating the truth. That's just that's just his opinion on stuff. And there's a little bit again, you know, it might be true that the coming out scene uh, hit the cutting room floor just because of the material. There's a little bit 
of stuff here where, you know, Sean and Richard are talking about whether gay guys want to be called homosexual. And Richard says that, you know, I don't want to be defined by my sexual term, just more of a lifestyle thing. So, like, that is I, – I, that might be pretty groundbreaking, again, for mid-2000s, even if it is just 30 seconds of talk. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's what I find that, – well, that's what I find to be interesting is that, you know, because Rudy is such a character and because – it's such a nice soundbite. You know, Rudy is kind of, he's a lot of America in the sense that he's trying to just grip with, I guess, you know, gay lifestyle in, in, in a way. And, and, and so people remember the Rudy quote, but a lot of Richard's conversations like with Sean and, and with, with other people actually, I think delve more into, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's sort of, sort of like what you said about Toggy being so nuanced and layered. Like there's a lot of great conversations happening, but they're not the ones that everyone remembers. And of course, capped off by the great one, the great Sean Kenneth, explaining to Richard that gay people don't like being called gay. Sean, <laughs> Thank you, I Sean. For, I forgot how Dr. Sean is an asshole in this. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into it once Richard starts fishing and, and Sean really becomes a dick. But like, he's a pretty big asshole. And especially, you know, I, I think he's remembered more so for doing dumb stuff with the alphabet strategy. But like, he's very cocksure with this type of stuff. Well, he's a know-it-all, and I, I've known a lot of people like Sean. They're gifted, they're bright, they're very advanced, and they assume everyone else is stupid. And that's the problem with people like Sean. He's so bright and so advanced, he does, it does not cross his mind that other people might be smart too. So it always seems like he's talking down to people. Well, and, and the way he comes off, again, I don't know him in real life, but the way he comes off on the show, it, it, it cocksure is a good way, but I think, I, think the, I think another word is just dense. <laughs> You know, in the sense that like like Mario said, you know, he he is a he is a know it all. He knows things. He he is, a, a, you know, he's a doctor. He's intelligent. And and he assumes that everyone is not quite on his educational level. And it's like he does. I don't think Dr. Sean can read a room really well, you know, and that's sort of one of those things where he's just going to plow ahead with who he is and he's going to say these things. And it's like he's not going to step back and 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 realize how people are reacting in that situation he's he's just got an idea and it's that's what the what it's going to go forward with it's just it's dense yeah and as mike said earlier sean was the one who wanted to become a star he wanted to be a tv or movie star he was very cognizant of his image he wanted to be a stand-up comedian so everything he says and does has to be factored into that he's always got an eye on how this is going to come off on tv so he wants to be the the non you know, non-conflict person. I'm just the, I'm just the comedian. I'm just the helper. I just like explaining things to people. He's very cognizant of how he comes off. It comes off very plastic at times. And here we get his first big star moment in the creation of Super Bowl 2000. <laughs> this is still one of my favorite things in Survivor. I I'm sorry. I know yeah. that, you know, we were many, many years later, but gosh, Super Bowl. <laughs> Once again, as always, Sean has come up with a fishing pole thinking that nobody else could have come up with a fishing pole because he's super smart and he names it super pole because it's large. And you know, he's a comedian. He's trying to do shtick. He's doing funny things, but he's not really joking. He's very impressed by his fishing pole. He spent five hours on it. <laughs> yes. And of course you got to remember the time period. This was in the year 2000. So naming an invention, something 2000 was actually appropriate that year. So that's, yeah. it's a nice little time capsule. But, of course, again, this ties into sort of the, the edit that Sean is going to get. Of course, the five-hour Super Bowl with, like, the big piece of bamboo and, you know, the little reel that he made and the piece of styrofoam as the float, 
He takes it out into the water, doesn't catch a thing, and never will catch a thing. Well, you know why? It's because the area is overfished. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Ramon is taking up too much of the ocean. I cannot get over that quote. Like, that quote to me is one of my, my favorite quotes ever. Like, everyone talks about the Super Bowl and how, you know, fun, you know, but a lot of the shots are just kind of pathetic. It's just Sean standing waist deep in water with the Super Bowl catching nothing, you know, which is, it's a nice shot, but it sort of gets old. But I just, when he's just like, ah, I didn't catch anything, maybe, maybe the area is overfished or something. And it's like, <laughs> is he joking? Is that a shtick? Or is is he really using that? Because in either scenario, that's that that's just horrific for him. You know, like either way, like if it's a bit, it's like that's not a good bit. And if it's if if he really is musing that, like maybe the area is overfished. It's like, are you kidding me? You're on a remote island. <laughs> if only they'd been there a week before, because the Bubba Gum Shrimp Company had just come trawling through yeah, exactly. here right before that took up all the fish. <laughs> maybe the area overfished. I I don't know if if anyone ever watches Survivor with me and gets to that that moment in in that episode like i literally am just on the floor howling with laughter every time and i know what's coming and it comes it's still great previously on survivor parvati chartered a boat and caught all the fish before sean could get there what a big move by the way that reminds me do you notice they don't say previously on survivor in this season yeah they say last week on survivor that's right there's no previously on yet Let's see, uh, to finish this episode, BB washes his, or washes his uh, clothes in the drinking water and the rice water. And so everyone's grossed out and they're mad because now they won't get to eat any rice all day. So thanks, BB. Good job. Yeah. And he also, everyone's like, okay, maybe we should like vote to do things. BB's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I refuse to vote <laughs> on anything that matters to my survival. Yeah, BB's checking out here. Although this does beg the question. Does BB actually quit? Is this considered a quit or not? What are your guys' opinions? I think, I mean, I don't, I do not think that quitting needs a formality. I think asking to be voted off is the same thing as a quit. Now, that being said, I do not necessarily begrudge all quitters depending on the circumstances. But yeah, I mean, we, we see this a bit as, you know, they get the tree mail for the immunity challenge or as BB calls it, the indemnity challenge. <laughs> um, <laughs> But he basically says, like, hey, you know, if you if we end up losing this challenge, if you want to lighten the load. Again, maybe BB being another game changer here, the first person to ever suggest throwing a challenge. Uh, basically, mm. we see a little bit of this, but apparently it happened more so behind the scenes that he held this big meeting where he basically said, like, I want to leave the game. I'm passing leadership off to Gretchen, which pissed Joel off doubly. First, because, mm -hmm. you know, BB's trying to engineer his own ouster to look good on TV and B, because he chose Gretchen as his successor and not Joel. Okay. No, I, I agree with that. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's Burnett waffles in his book if BB quits or not. In the episode, they waffle. So it's like, it's very open-ended whether it's really a quit or not. Anyway, we'll go to that in a second. First, got to go through tree mail, which Jeff explains what tree mail is again. <laughs> they will be getting mail in this tree. And then <laughs> uh, this, is the, this is the eating disgusting bugs challenge, which is funny. It's very noteworthy, especially in this episode when you watch, because... They uh, read the tree mail, the Toggies, and Stacy's like, oh, it's the eating disgusting bugs challenge. Like, they kind of knew it was coming. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they got, like, maybe if they were asked in some stuff in the interviews, like, hey, if there was a challenge that focused on eating disgusting things, would you do it? Maybe she caught on to that. Because, yeah, it's not necessarily, again, even though Survivor might for some reason be remembered as a show where people eat disgusting things, it really is just a drop in the bucket. 
Yeah, and that does remind me. Stacy says something later when she's about to be voted out in the next episode. She's like, "Don't vote me out because the challenges coming up are all up to my strengths." Yeah, and then when she gets when she gets voted out, she says that they voted out their bug eating hero. So she really was yeah. focusing on uh, the challenges that apparently she can do. I don't know, but somehow they knew the list of potential challenges, I think. And you'll see little comments the players make as the season goes along. Oh, I heard a rumor the other tribe caught fish. Oh, I heard a rumor they have an alliance. There's there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than I think in other seasons. <laughs> okay, this is the bug-eating challenge. We eat the butods. Now, a lot of Survivor fans think it's butok. I don't know why. For some reason, it's been it's been passed down over the years as butok, B-U-T-O-K. It's actually butod which uh, Burnett specifies in the book. And I was listening today, or when I was watching the episode, Jeff really does say Butod with a D. So that's one thing that needs to be cleared up. Almost well, as much as... Do you, know, do you know why it's Butok? Do you know why that is? I do not know. Please en enlighten me, Jay. Well, I would I would, I would, would uh, hazard a guess is because that is a trivia question in Survivor All-Stars. Ah, so they Mandela affected themselves. And he says Butok? No. Jenna Lewis writes it as Butok. She, oh. That's how she writes it, and the rest of them, the other ones say grubs. They say it's not specific enough. They're looking for butok. <laughs> they're okay. looking for be they're looking for beetle larvae, right? And Jenna gets it right because you know she was in the challenge and she's there and blah blah blah. And um, yeah, so that's what she writes down on the on the parchment. So I think it just goes from there. Okay, that's good to know. I did not know that. Hey, look at me knowing something. Holy Wait, does crap. That, does that mean that Jenna Lewis technically cheated on that question because she wrote the wrong spelling down? <laughs> right. It does. And also, Paul liked Jenna until she said the dirty B word. He didn't like her after that. I didn't really know exactly what Butak was, but it sounded dirty. Yeah, I was, Paul, did you hate Pagong after they sang Put It In Your Mouth to Jervis? <laughs> yeah, it was really made me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Did, did cheating Jenna write that down, or did her cheating brother write it down? <laughs> yeah, Jai stepped in and was like, no, it's a, it's Butok, don't worry. Speaking of which, there's one other, okay, one other nitpick I have to point out. Butod and versus Butok. The name of the island that they're on, this has infuriated me for years because everyone says it wrong. You know the name, the name of the island they're on? It's Pulau Tiga, P-U-L-A-U. Everyone says Palua. They get the A and the U backwards. It's not Palua, it's Pulau. Because Dr. Sean says that in an episode. God damn, these people are Mandela infecting well, this whole show. I was going to say, was it Sue trying to spell it like she did Sonia and mixed up two letters? No, it it, it was it was Dr. Sean, and I and I forget, I, I don't think it's happened yet in, in, a, in our rewatch, but I will I will make note of it when it happens. He says, like, oh, something's happening in Palua Tiga today. Oh, damn, Sean. Okay. But that is that has gotten under my skin for years because even very highly regarded writers and survivor analysts and experts say Palua Tiga, and it's not. If you let's look at it, it's it's A U. It's basically Palau just with a U at the start. Pulau. And we should also say that in terms of it's nowadays known as Survivor Borneo, but at the time, obviously, it was just known as Survivor. And then once Australia, once Survivor Australia came around, like okay, I guess we have to change it, you know, the name. And I think fans sort of dubbed it Survivor Pulau Tiga. And then I'm not mm -hmm. sure at what point in the chronology that the show itself officially deemed the season Survivor Borneo. I think it was at All Stars. All Stars, yeah, the All Stars, yeah, Because yeah. yeah. I knew I, it as I knew it as Survivor Pulau Tiga. Yeah, same here. That's what I always called it up until All Stars. All of a sudden, it became Borneo. Like, oh, that's like, new. Oh, Borneo. Okay, Borneo. That's 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 quicker. <laughs> yeah, that's that saved fair. me a lot of time. Yeah, let me tell you. Less spelling mistakes. 
it, it, it makes up for the, the fact that it is not Survivor Australia and Survivor colon the Australian Outback. <laughs> that is a mouthful. That is a long title. I've always that hated is, that. Is a lot. Yeah. Listen, for let's, years. Let's, I don't know. It's no Survivor Vanuatu colon Islands of Fire. Oh, yeah, there is that. <laughs> All right. There was cannibalism once there, maybe. <laughs> okay, let's go to this immunity challenge. This is iconic. This is one that everyone remembers. Although it is funny when you watch it now, the eating of the bootods is that it's shot very sloppily. This is a very messy challenge. It's not done very well at all. People are talking no. over each other. It's terrible. It, 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 and it's so communal. And they're almost like children just, you know, going this because, you know, it's the, it's the gross bug challenge. And I think that just as we, the audience, are so fascinated by this, they were fascinated by it. Right. Because they're there. And so you can't contain their excitement. And it's not just Jeff going, all right, we're going to all sit over here. We're going to come up to a place. They just right. sat around this communal table. They placed all the bugs in front of all of them at one time. Like they did some things just sort of uh, uh, executionally wrong. And because of that, it just sort of creates this fervor. And it was just it was not shot well, but I don't think they presented it well. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the only thing to take away from this challenge really is Jervis. And this was, you know, one of the most infamous moments from the show to the point where when Jervis returned, they brought back not only this type of challenge, but they brought back the Bootod and Jervis is 0 for 2 on the Bootod. But obviously this was like, I would say probably his big moment. Like he'll eat rats in the next episode, but I feel like he'll never live down what happened with the Bootod. Yeah. And again, this was a big scene. They would always show this in Survivor Highlight Reels, the eating of the Bootods, Jervis not being able to do it, slapping his head, falling over. Although there's other things I noticed just watching it again. Stacy's freakishly long tongue, which I know had to make Paul super uncomfortable. And then the voiceovers. Man, listen to the terrible probes voiceovers. It's like watching watching uh, Trump Apprentice season one. There's so many terrible voiceovers that are different audio quality than the rest of the scene. It's just this whole scene is just a mess. I also uh, will point out Colleen's headdress, which before Elizabeth Filarski, there was somebody else reinventing, you know, hair slash hat styles on the island. Yep. And Colleen also is the one who chewed her butad the most disgustingly. Everyone else takes one bite and tries to down it. Colleen savors it and chews it and enjoys it. So more power to her. Do you know what word Elizabeth Filarski never said? Sex. To this the day, S probably. The S-E-X yeah. word. I love how you spelled the whole word out. <laughs> you spelled the S-E-X word. Like boning? Like what are you talking about? <laughs> well, he spells it for Sue who thinks it's S-E-C-S. S-E-S-C. <laughs> -E in case you, yeah, in case she's listening. <laughs> I know Sue's a big historians fan. All right. So yeah, Jervis cannot eat. And for some, like it's kind of anticlimactic because everybody can eat except Jervis. Although he finally does. And at the end they have to pick a tiebreaker, pick someone in each tribe who's squeamish and nobody on Toggy was squeamish. So they pick Stacy for no reason. And she just downs it again. It's like not even close. And Jervis goes out. So Pagong is going to their first tribal council. And Jeff says, Hey, grab some sticks. Cause there were snakes on the way beforehand. <laughs> yes. He said the other S word. Two of them, actually, actually. All right, so we're going to Pagong. And again, this is just like the first tribal council with Tagi. There's almost no strategy discussions at all. We just get talking heads saying why people might be ver uh, nervous or what they're thinking tonight. It's really fascinating how open-ended the whole thing is. 
Yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of, of talk. Like, Jenna says that she personally would want to vote off Ramona because she feels like at least BB is contributing, even though she ends up voting uh, with BB. Greg is the one that actually ends up voting for Ramona. I guess one of the more interesting things is, like, BB trying to bequeath things to Gretchen posthumously, and also Jenna and Ramona painting themselves with charcoal, which all of basically all of Pagong will do going into this tribal council. And BB does have the quote, if they vote out me or Gretchen, that would be like dropping an atomic bomb here. So there you go. <laughs> and we go to tribal council, and again, it's uh, very amateurish. It's not shot very well. They don't really know what they're doing. Uh, it's, uh, everyone's talking over each other. It's shot from a weird angle. BB is voted out. BB does not quit, but they vote him out anyway. And again, you could argue if he quit or not, if he asked to be voted out. And again, it's not that exciting or memorable other than the fact that B, the tribal councils are still sad. It's presented very sadly. Like you feel bad for BB, so they treat him with respect. But the big takeaway and the interesting thing about this, this tribal council is the behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll give you the short version. The short version is that People think or say, oh, Greg convinced the Pagongs to vote for Jeff Probst, and Jeff got mad, which is a very simplistic way of saying a very complex situation. I don't know, I remember how much they talk about it in the book. Mike probably knows this better than me, but it wasn't so much Greg. It was all the Pagongs. The Pagongs were just irreverent. They did not respect authority. They were laughing during tribal council, not listening to Jeff, not taking the process seriously. Some of them voted for Jeff Probst when they went up there. He got mad and made them do it again. But it was not just a Greg thing. This is just Pagong in general, their whole mindset. They just did not respect this process very much. And it really infuriated Jeff and Burnett afterwards. So Burnett actually focuses it a lot on Greg, maybe because to focus on the whole psychology of him. But he said that, you know, Jeff asked why Pagong covered themselves in charcoal and Jeff you know, Greg means that they're they're hiding behind masks. And apparently after BB was voted out, Greg said in a pirate voice, Arr, and a good captain you were. And as, you know, we talked about, they tried to make Tribal Council this really big, solemn thing. And I think that was sort of the last straw with Probst. Apparently he really chewed Greg out after that. But to your point, I could see how that sort of represents the vast entirety, but probably the exception of, of Gretchen, of Pagong, with that statement. And I think you, you can also put some merit into them being a little scared of things, you know, not scared straight, but but in a way being lectured at. But I think also there's some credence to the BB got voted out because, you know, Pagong is sort of notorious. You know, they're not going to have like a ton of votes, to be honest with you, um, as it is. But I mean, we're we're, we're down the ways from the infamous Gretchen 4111111111111 binary vote. And, and all that sort of stuff. But if you look, Toggy's first tribal council is actually a little more messy in the sense that three people were voted for in the, in the first uh, uh, Toggy vote. There was obviously Sonia, but Rudy and then Stacy got the vote from Richard, right? Whereas in this Pagong vote, their next one's going to have three people voted for and, and whatnot. But this one was just they either voted for Bibi or they voted for Ramona. Yeah, it's very straightforward. It's really, are you going to let BB quit or do you want to keep him around for his work ethic? Like, how much of a hindrance is it to keep BB around? Because Ramona was deadly sick and doing nothing. So it really is, is BB that big of a pain in the ass? You could lose his leadership. They eventually decided, yeah, I guess we can. We got Gretchen and Joel, so whatever. So, and with that, we bid BB farewell. Yeah, and I think to Jay's point, that's also representative of like, you know, when there is sort of like that butt monkey 
in the group. It almost helps unify the tribe. And you see, when BB goes, there's a little more dissension among the ranks. Burnett describes it as, like, Toggy surprisingly coalesces as Pagong begins to fall apart and get a little more angry with each other, sort of culminating in the whole thing with Joel slash Jervis and the comments uh, in episode six. So it's an interesting sort of rise and fall that we don't necessarily expect, where while Tagi starts fractured, but due to the alliance coming together, is able to sort of find their footing by the time they get around to the Dirk vote, over on Pagong, they start unified, but then fall apart as the weak links get, you know, thrown out of there and they can only focus on turning on themselves. That's an important lesson. I'm really glad you brought that up because I had not thought about that before. I'm glad Burnett mentioned it in the book because we see this in other seasons as well, that sometimes it's better to go to tribal council early just to, you know, cut that rope and get it done with early. It's the tribes that wait longer before they vote people out that sometimes are the worst off in the long run. And we see that in Marquesas with the row two, four. That's a big one, especially they went the longest stretch of anyone in history without voting anybody out. And when they started doing it, they just completely fell apart because they weren't ready for it. They just were, were way too bonded by then. So that's an important little lesson here in survivor history that, that, that ties into. Okay, I want to wrap this up. We're going to wrap this up with two episodes. We're going to keep this fairly short so it's not a huge podcast. But I would I would like to know your thoughts on BB, especially the two, Mike and Paul, who were young at the time. What were your thoughts on BB at the time? Did you like him or did you find him insufferable? I, I do not think I had the connection to him that I did to Sonia. So <laughs> it felt like <laughs> I was not as sad at the end of the episode, too. I still was not hooked in. That's going to come up in our next episode. Um, but, yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the the closest avatars that I'm assuming Paul and I were both able to find were with these youthful Pagongs. So it was one of those things of, like, whatever the Pagongs said, I believed. And so if the Pagongs are saying, BB's annoying and he's crabby, then I'm like, yeah, BB's annoying and crabby. Good riddance. So I agree with Paul. It was much less of a fond farewell as it was with Sonya, where I'm like, okay, BB's a, an interesting worker, but, like, he's a mean old man, and I, I don't want him, you know, uh, bothering the people that I like in this show. When, again, looking at it from a more mature perspective, he's a really interesting character, and he has a huge role, po arguably one of the biggest roles in these first two episodes. So, you know, we talk a lot, especially in Modern Survivor, about, like, your pre-merged characters and the arcs that they have, BB has a surprisingly big arc, even though he's only in two episodes of the season. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that Burnett liked him, and Burnett probably agreed with him over the Pagongs. And you'll notice that in the book, Burnett does not like the Pagongs at all. He's very <laughs> harsh on them. But the audience, and this can never be stated enough, was like hugely in favor of the Pagongs. Pagongs were always the big fan favorites. The audience is like them. But it was really interesting. You go on the message boards afterwards, and it was very much like Africa, where the older viewers of Survivor were pro-BB. They're like, well, that guy had a work ethic. He was trying to get stuff done. And those are people who were lazy and disrespectful. And the young people, like Mike and Paul, like I was asking, were 100% pro-Pagong, usually. Like, BB's just this cranky old man. He's boss. He's a tyrant. And so it was very much a big generational thing. I always found it fascinating that what people thought of BB is based on how old they are when they watch this. Because older people will relate to him, younger people won't. And it was like almost a one-to-one -one correlation. There was almost no variance from that from my, my recollection. 
Right, and because this this game is so fresh, right, and so new, we don't understand this because because we've talked about this on historians with with seasons in the past, um, and I've said it before. It's Survivor 101. You need to read the room, and by the room I mean your tribe at the beginning. If there are a tribe of people that have some sort of like a uh, uh, big tireless work ethic where everyone gets up and they do chores and they work and you don't necessarily like doing that, you should probably work because if you're not going to work, you are going to get singled out. Conversely, if you're on a tribe of people who want to lay around and do beach yoga and suntan and do all those sorts of things and, and you want to do work and you're yelling at them for doing work, maybe you should just kick back and sit on the beach for a little bit, even though you don't want to because you want to fit in with the tribe. So these are concepts that are going to come you know with with more seasons and all of that but this is sort of this first sort of test where bb wants to work pagong does not want to work bb does not adjust and so you know i think that people who are watching the show they're putting their impressions on the show because we don't have a backlog of seasons or or experience ourselves to sort of put onto the show. So we just see the Pagongs as not doing work and BB wants to do work. And so people who are akin to doing work or have a positive work ethic in that sense are going to side with BB because they agree with that. So, so as these early seasons happen, especially with these early sort of uh, archetypes of characters, people are going to latch onto them more because we don't have other examples to get from. I have a funny story about BB. I want to share. This is a, uh, I wrote about this in my book, but it's it's a it's it's good to tell. What did he do to Mertz this time? No, this had Mertz had nothing to do with this one. Although you wrote this in your book, that's on sale. It is. It's on sale, but I, I, you should order. It's called When It Was Worth Playing For. But anyway, so I was my family took a trip to Australia in the summer of 2000, right when Survivor was airing. And I was big into Survivor. This is right after the fifth episode of Survivor, the Dirk episode. He'd just been voted out. So I'm over in Australia, and we're on trip. And we're on this place called Heron Island, which is off the Gold Coast. And we're in this resort. And for some reason, there's all these families around. And we're sitting there at a communal table, and we're talking about TV. And I mentioned, though, oh, oh, we're big Survivor fans. And they're like, oh, us too. And we started talking with all these Australian families about Survivor. But it was hilarious because Australia was three episodes behind us. So, like, we just had the Dirk episode in the U.S. They just had the BB episode that night or the night before in Australia. So it was very fresh in their heads. And so I'm sitting there talking with all these people, and they were dying to know what was going to happen on Survivor. They're like, you're three episodes ahead? And they, like, were treating me like I was a god, like C-3PO with the Ewok village. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? I'm like, no, you don't want to know. Yes, we do. So I had these kids. They were like six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids would follow me and my family around all week because they wanted to know Survivor spoilers. And it was the most hilarious thing because I was treated with such respect and dignity. I was an elder. But the thing I wanted to point out is that all these kids, these Australian kids, were so mad that the Pagongs voted out BB. And I'm like, really? All these little kids are like, yeah, BB had a good work ethic and those Pagongs were brats and they didn't listen to him and I'm so mad and he's the greatest person and I'm like, I have never, ever heard a young person in, Aust- in America defend BB and say the Pagongs were horrible. Like, what, what is different in this culture? You guys all love BB. I just thought that was so fascinating that these young kids were Team BB and not Team Pagong. So that was the first lesson in my life that American and Australian culture are much different. Yeah, I mean, it's they're on the opposite side of the globe, so it makes sense they have the opposite <laughs> sense of values when it comes to Survivor. 
Exactly. Right. Thank you for explaining that. But yeah, I was so shocked that these kids loved BB. I'd never seen that before. I mean, they live their whole life upside down. What, what can you expect? <laughs> they do. And then they went ahead to go uh, go home and wash their clothing in the uh, in the pot of boiling water on the stove that they were going to use for dinner. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure the nation of Australia is hearing this, and they're going to you know they're going to have a time machine. They're going to take these insults that we're hurling at them from the year 2000, and they're going to sit on them. And they're going to stew, and then they're going to come out with a version of Survivor that's better than America's. <laughs> <laughs> we'll show you all. We'll prove that BB's right by having the oldest Survivor player ever win. <laughs> and I do have to say as a follow up to my story as I was leaving the island there was one kid I really liked his name was Brian or something and he's like please Brian please I don't remember it's, it was 20 years ago I don't remember but he's like tell me please let me know the next three boots and I said alright it's Stacy and then it's Ramona and then it's Dirk he's like why would they vote out Dirk he was so mad <laughs> So you should, anyway. you should have fed him false names what am I, Russell Hans? I'm not giving people fake spoilers. <laughs> Who got voted out? Well, listen, Brian, or whatever your name is. Is it is it crispy? <laughs> is it is it crunchy? What what's your name? Um, uh, I would have to say that uh, Lance gets voted out next. <laughs> and then and then the shelter burns down, and Rudy's trapped inside, so he just sort of gets voted out by proxy. And then there's a tied vote, and they both go home after that. It's a crazy, crazy season. I can't wait for you to enjoy it, Brian, if that's your real name. I wish I had you guys as my writers 20 years ago. Where were you, you 10-year-olds that I needed to help? <laughs> I wasn't 10. I know. You were, you were like 12. Also, I, I feel like it would be a crime if you hired a 10-year-old to write for you at that time. <laughs> yeah, what am I, a Can I unplug my ears now? <laughs> yes. Sorry, Paul. Yes, we're, we're almost done. You can talk again. Okay, thanks. Yeah. All right, so so that is it. That's the end of two episodes, the first two episodes of Survivor. And again, as expected, if you know anything about sociology, the two old people get voted out first. They would be the least valuable members of a new society forming out in the wilderness, just the, the elderly people. And I remember specifically telling my wife, I'm like, this, this show is going to be really interesting, but it's going to be four episodes because it's going to go old people first, and then they'll have to turn on each other. So it should go Sunya, Bibi, Rudy. And then the next episode happens, and it's not Rudy. And I, my mind was blown that it wasn't Rudy, although, as we will get into, there was a little malfeasance behind that, perhaps. Maybe it should have been Rudy. <laughs> In a yeah. world, maybe, before a couple of talkings, too, it would have been. <laughs> yeah, we will. I, I didn't want to end on episode three, because that one's so important. Absolutely one of the most important episodes in Survivor history. Very iconic. Not everyone knows about this. Hopefully most of our listeners do, but it was very, very notorious and infamous and bad for the show at the time because the producers totally had their hands in the cookie jar and they shouldn't have. But we will start part two of this podcast with that one, I guarantee. That's a good way to end. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So anyway, I want to thank you guys for listening to us and and. Just to, as a heartfelt note, that hopefully I can speak for all of us, that we really appreciate everyone listening to us. I know times right now are scary for a lot of people. A lot of people are being hit with economic issues, family issues, maybe health issues. I feel horrible if you guys have health issues you're dealing with or anybody is. So uh, we just want to appreciate you guys are listening to us. Um, just remember, we're quarantined, too. We're all locked down. We're all going through this together. I'm going to try to have historians come out on a fairly regular schedule here, at least for the next couple of weeks, just because we really have nothing else to do. Where are so, we going? Yeah, exactly. We will try to get these out regularly so you have more to listen to. We know people really like these. So just from the bottom of our heart, I want to say thank you for listening and for taking part in our project that we never expected to last this long.
We love you all. Stay safe. Yeah, and I, I really encourage people, especially if you have extra time, go and watch Borneo. I have had so much fun, especially in these trying mm. times, getting to re-experience this season that made me fall in love with Survivor and reality television and really pop culture uh, to begin with. And it's a great like nostalgia trip, but also rediscovering or discovering for the first time certain qualities about this season in particular is really a hoot. So check some stuff out, especially uh, moving forward with the episodes that we're going to be covering in future podcasts. And of course, watch for Colleen saying sex. <laughs> oh, there goes Paul. Right. As always, once again, I'm... I can't hear you. Can't you? <laughs> As always, once again, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. I'm Mike Bloom. Paul Oslison. We will talk to you guys later. Make sure don't tell anybody where the watering hole is, and we'll talk to you then. See ya. Well, I think the work ethic problem is doesn't ever change. I mean, the people who are working, working. The people who rest are resting, and that's that's the way it is. About 80, 85 percent of the time. The laziest person is Ramona. I mean, she just doesn't contribute anything. She probably hasn't worked 10 or 15 minutes in five days. I think she's really a drag because she drinks her water, takes her, eats her food, and takes room in the, in the hutch.